Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights from leaders in transport around the globe. I'm Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions, and today myself and Chris Bichette from Bolden Networks are talking to the wonderful Rory Sutherland. Rory is the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK and the founder of the Behavioural Science Practice, and a bit of a legend in the innovation and transport communities. Yes, they do overlap. We've already spoken to his co-author of Transport for Humans in this series, Pete Dyson, but we thought Rory really needed his own episode. In this episode, we cover a wide range of topics in a bumper-length special from the magic of the Heathrow pod parking system to how e-bikes are not really the same thing as a bicycle, the issue with airports turning into luxury shopping malls, staffing in train stations, and why coach travel is often left unfairly to the appendix. Chris and I for sure enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you do too. As you can tell from the enthusiasm of Rory, he was excited for this conversation too and jumped right into the topic. You arrive at this fundamental problem where uh, engineers optimise for things like speed and capacity and journey time or punctuality. And I'm not saying that any of those things are totally irrelevant, but I am saying those things actually have diminishing returns. And that... You know, the real reason, you know, the real reason people travel by train is sometimes one of those reasons, you know, it's more reliable in terms of journey time if you're commuting. But a lot of the time it's just because of preference. It's just that actually I prefer going by train than I do driving because there's something about the train that's really nice. And, um, uh, you know, I don't, I think that actually in many cases the real hurdle to overcome isn't further trying to improve all these sort of numerical quantitative metrics it's actually going it's actually going into the weeds of human psychology and understanding how people make choices and so on and so forth and that's certainly one of the things that we picked up on um Ian and I both both uh studied extensively uh transport for humans and uh that's one of the things that jumps out that we use again and again the the, en- the engineering Every problem has an engineering solution that is commonly adopted by by transit agencies. I think it often comes down to who gets given a problem first. It's the old version of to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And it tends to be that knotty problems are given first to engineers in some fields, economists, lawyers, etc., and they immediately, without even being consciously aware of doing so, they immediately define it as an engineering problem, an economic problem, a legal problem. And then don't look outside the constraints of their own domain to look for solutions. But actually, and the other thing I think that is a problem is that we've been taught through long years of schooling that rewriting the question is cheating. You know, if you ask someone what was the date of the American War of Independence and someone says 1066, I decided to make the question about the Norman Conquest. Okay, That's obviously not a satisfactory answer in, in a history quiz. But in a marketing question, when you're dealing with psychology, actually it's perfectly acceptable, in fact desirable in many cases, to allow the question, allow a certain fluidity of the question while searching for the answer. In other words, the process is a bit like house hunting or dating in that it's recursive. You know, in other words, what you do and what you discover informs the question that you initially asked. 
And I think that urge to say, define the problem at the beginning and then proceed in a completely linear way with no backtracking to the single logical right answer, which is what we've been taught as proof of rationality and reason. Um, actually, it's the wrong way to go about it. In fact, you know, it's perfectly okay to say, you know, the original brief talked about high-speed two having a certain capacity, having a certain speed. Actually, why don't we rewrite the question as, how do we make the train so attractive that people feel stupid driving? You know, which which is a more, it's a more open-ended question. But by dint of being more open-ended, it's more likely to lead to a really interesting, creative, and possibly very inexpensive solution, by the way. Because what people actually probably care about as much as anything else is, you know, things like connectivity, catering, and the convenience of intermodal, of, of the convenience of getting from the car to the train is what gets people out of the car. And what you notice about most railway stations is, you know, the whole process of parking, paying for parking, then, you know, effectively getting your way onto the train station is just a level of pain which people will avoid if they possibly can. Um, I, I have a very interesting story to tell about that, actually, which interests me, which is if you ever come to Heathrow, Ian, you've presumably been to Heathrow, have you ever used the pod parking at Terminal 5? I've got an Uber to take me to the pod parking just because I wanted to go in the pod. Yeah, no, no, I, I, that is absolutely perfect. I had a colleague who... Similarly, whenever the pod parking was full and he was told that he'd been upgraded to short-stay parking at no extra cost, his one feeling was not of gratitude. It was, but I wanted to ride in the pod. I mean, he was a 64-year-old serious <laughs> business person. And, um, and, and, and incidentally, by the way, that also avoids the Uber having to pay the £5 drop-off charge. There's something psychological about that pod, which just means that things like park and ride or things like getting to a railway station you could potentially have a car park that's two miles away from the railway station in inexpensive land where people were absolutely happy to park there because the journey to the station was by pod rather than, say, by 15-minute bus shuttle. And understanding those psychological... But this is the amazing psychology of it. Yeah, it is. The, like the psychology of the, the, pod, the pod parking and the Newark Airport monorail are basically the same thing, but the Newark Airport monorail is crap. And it's like that idea of like how you you want to go in the Heathrow pod parking, but you do not want to go on the on the Newark monorail to change terminal or go to the Newark train station or whatever it might be. Like that that to me is really interesting. The pod's private, yeah. Um, and there, there's a this is one of the things the anti-car movement don't understand, which is the two things of autonomy and privacy that the car confers. And I was I always tell this story, which is that. I was once upgraded to first class on a flight back from Boston. And I got, I, I, I then, I, I, they just said, go to first, and they'll upgrade you or whatever it was. And I went into the first class cabin. And I said, where would you like me to sit? They said, anywhere you like, you're the only. <laughs> so I sat there in splendid isolation with a cabin all to myself. And at one point they brought me a choice of reading matter. What would you like to read, sir? And there was a copy of the Spectator in which I had an article. So I very smugly, and I, I apologise for this, I think I'd like to read something written by me. <laughs> now, the extraordinary thing was, it was about as good a flight as you could conceivably ask for. But still, if I'm being honest, the highlight of my journey was that business where I got back to my car and climbed into my own car. I put my luggage in the boot of the car, I was now a self-contained autonomous unit, and I started driving home. And so there is that fundamental question about what the car does emotionally to us 
in terms of it isn't just a mode of transportation. It's housing, it's storage, it's privacy, it's security to a large extent, I suppose. And, you know, the kind of feeling that, you know, and you for the first time in six hours, you can fart. <laughs> <laughs> Loudly. Okay. But some of that deep unconscious stuff about our relationship with the car, not everybody seems to feel it. I noticed that Londoners, where you don't have a car culture, a lot of them don't own cars or they only rent them. They don't really get it. But once you live anywhere that's slightly less densely populated than a very large city, the car wins. I mean, one of the points I make is that actually, if we're being blunt about it, there isn't really tourism without car hire. Okay. So if I look if I look back at the places I really, really feel proud of discovering, you know, from Santa Fe, New Mexico to White Sands to going to Falling Water, these are just the American places, you know, to discovering funny enough, I rented an electric car in Italy. And because I, I, I did it as an act of bravado, basically, going, can I make this electric car work in Italy? Because it's kind of testing instruction. The charging was no problem. And as a consequence of charging in a weird place, I discovered an utterly fantastic cafe, which happened to be within 100 yards of the charging place. And all of those things, it, basically, if you travel by plane and public transport, you have that central petal thing. You're all funneled into busy airports in mega cities. And you go and see exactly what you're supposed to see in a mega city, and then you go home. Well, that's great. It's kind of tourism, but it doesn't match the kind of discovery of driving into White Sands, New Mexico, and going, oh, "But shit is, you know, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, I, I, you know, I, I knew it was kind of worth visiting, but then you you drive there and discover it off your own bat, and you know, and actually just going into little, you know, little American towns and going. Hey, this place is actually really, really cute. So I, I, I do. I find myself doing this because I have an argument on LinkedIn frequently with a prominent real estate o- investor, owner, operator in Toronto, because the man is always banging on about how he wants to drive his car everywhere, and it. I look at it and go, "Come on, old man! Like, stop! Like, you need to go and get on a train or ride a bike or walk somewhere or like, heaven forbid, get on a bus." But it it, t- it pushes you into this thing of. You are a car, you're a, you're a motorist or you're a public transit fanatic and not necessarily reason. I drive a car, I ride a bike, I walk, I fly. Can I not have all of these things nicely? The same problem exists between cars and cyclists. Cars and cyclists are constantly at war, but people do both. And I always argue that actually what we ought to do is say, look, let's stop this ludicrous kind of them and us tribalization between cars and cyclists. Let's focus on something we both want, which is fewer potholes, because potholes are annoying to car owners and potentially fatal to cyclists. In fact, if you dig into the history of it, well, good quality surface roads were really the product of lobbying from the cycling industry and and cyclists before there were enough motorists to make a difference. So the whole thing of macadamized smooth roads Really, the cyclists actually drove that technology before the motorists did. Because um, there, there must have been a period, I suppose, in the late 19th century after the invention of this, the Raleigh safety bike, which is an extraordinary thing because there were lots and lots of kind of bike-like ve- vehicles. And then Raleigh came up with this thing, Rover, sorry, not Raleigh, Rover came up with this thing called the Rover safety bike, which is basically the modern bicycle. And, you know, since, since that Rover safety, it's the same thing that was a car company, Rover, later, but they came up with a design of a bike, which is basically that triangle, since when it hasn't been significantly improved, unless you're really into like, entertainment. 
Okay. And um, uh, that must have led to an extraordinary explosion in cycling as a mode of transport, which then led to campaigns to improve the roads in a way that hadn't been so pressing in the horse-drawn era. And it, and so actually, I think also the lack of a tyre helped as yes, well. Yes, you're probably right. Yes. <laughs> and it, but it's, it's quite it, painful it, to ride a bike. <laughs> it, it, is really, it is really interesting in the sense that... Um, uh, there are, there are, of course, one of the things that bicycles have in common with cars is they're both autonomous vehicles. In other words, in rather than being hub and spoke or network driven, they are kind of go where you want to go, end up where you want to end up. And one of the interesting things I think with electrification of transport is that what you will see is there will be a kind of, I think. The, the the yawning gap at the moment between car and bicycle will be filled in with smaller two-seater, you know, um, lower range, perhaps electric vehicles. The, the e-bike, of course, is absolutely critical. I was talking to people in Switzerland uh, who lived in Geneva. They said, being honest about it, OK, until the e-bike came along, cycling in bloody Switzerland, <laughs> that's you have to just <laughs> go from one place along Lake Geneva to somewhere else. Cycling in Switzerland from home to work was a non-starter because basically, you know, typically that office is, say, by the lake. Your journey in would be an absolute breeze, but your journey home would be absolute agony. <laughs> and, of course, the dirty secret of bikes is that uphill, they aren't much faster than walking. I mean, that, that is the dirty secret of bikes. And they're just on the edge of efficiency so that if you add weight or comfort or storage capacity, you make them too painful to cycle. So they're right, they're right on the edge of what the human body is capable of. So by giving them an electric boost and having things like the cargo bike, which enables you to carry kind of kids and the shopping around, that, and, and maybe by having a comfier seat, you know, that's a leap forward for a lot of older people or people who are less fit. You know, if you're not Lance Armstrong, basically, and you're not happy to have a blood transfusion every time you go to work, you know, the e-bike is important. But also the miniaturization of cars will be important because you can miniaturize electric motors a hell of a lot better than you can internal combustion engines. In fact, you can actually put them in the wheels. So your wheel is your source of motive power. And that, that I think will be really interesting because the pod, the pod is kind of a glimpse of a form of transport, which is you get into a little private vehicle and you go from roughly where you want to go to roughly where you want to go to you know, closer to a taxi, um, that that becomes really, really interesting because I, the, the, there is a, I'm a Georgist, just to be clear, Henry George, the great um, uh, American kind of campaigner for a single land value tax. And Henry George's insight was that whenever you get any form of economic activity, which is dependent for its performance on its location, the gains to that activity overwhelmingly start to go to the landowner in the shape of rent rather than to the practitioner of the uh, uh, the value-add person in the actual business itself. And so you can see that with commercial office space. And, of course, the train, in one respect, in, what, in, in one respect, of course, the coming of the trains allowed London to expand and allowed people to take advantage of cheaper land prices because you could now commute from far further away. But in the other respect, of course, it concentrated people in the middle. And then when you have those areas of high footfall, effectively, you know, it's rather like you know, airport retail. Most of the money doesn't go to the retailer. It goes to the fucking airport okay? <laughs> because they've got a stranglehold over 
you know, rich people who are in a state of total confusion who'll buy any shit, right? Okay, you know, that's the face of an And what's fantastic about the car, and you only realise this, is that you can buy a crappy failing pub in the middle of nowhere, and if you turn it into a good enough bar or pub or restaurant, people will drive to you. And so you get the money rather than... This is the Cotswolds. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, you got it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you can actually... I always, I always found it great watching Little House on the Prairie. If you, I don't know if you ever watched that. It used to be on, weirdly, on British television on, I think it was Sunday mornings or Saturday mornings. And my wife and I just got into the habit of watching it because it is actually lovely. And um, we could never understand, first, why everybody hated the Olsons, who were the local shopkeepers. I mean, they, you know, they were rich and they were widely loathed and they're presented... Okay, it's kind of retail, you know, give them a break, right? Okay, you know, you want to... And then I suddenly realised, of course, the Olsons had them over a barrel because the nearest town was kind of 15 miles away. And if you wanted to buy anything without losing a day's work, you effectively had to go to the bloody Olsons. And the town was probably small enough so the Olsons had a bit of a monopoly. And as a consequence, I suddenly understood, actually, in the pre-car age quite a lot of retailers really had, you know, had you by the balls. Yeah. And so understanding, I think, that importance of there's public transport, there's private transport, but there's also what you might call a centripetal network, a network that concentrates traffic, and there are networks that disperse it. And I think, I think understanding that distinction, you know, there are kind of, um, you know, in other words, there are two kinds of network. There's bus networks at, at some level can be quite, uh, you know, less centripetal, but rail networks always end up with a final destination. Air, of course, airports are even, airlines are even worse, okay? They basically just concentrate people in enormous cities. This was an argument of Deutsche Bahn. Like, one of the reasons people say Deutsche Bahn is struggling right now is because its network was never built around a central... Like, British Rail is built around London, SNCF is built around Paris, but the Germany's crisscrossy. So the peculiar thing about Germany is there's a big status statement in Germany if you call yourself a Millionenstadt, which is a, a city with a million people. Now, Berlin is the only contender for being kind of mega city status in Germany. You know, the capital Bonn historically was, you know, I don't know, it was like a quarter of a million, half a million people. I, you know, Cologne manages to be a Millionenstadt by including quite a lot of places around it. Frankfurt is, I think. Hamburg is. Munich is. You know, they don't even. I don't think there's a German city that's. It's not like Paris or London. Uh, other than Berlin, there isn't a really a German city that's on a par with Birmingham. And so it was. A, you know, it's by it's the nature of the beast in Germany, which does mean, by the way, they tend to have relatively sane property prices, along with their propensity to rent. Um, but it it is kind of the nature of the beast that you have these. You know, effectively connection between cities of roughly equivalent size, which is unusual because. Usually, um, in most in most places, the capital city, or more technically, the largest city, is twice the size of the second biggest city. And of course, in West Germany, unusually, that wasn't true. It's probably true. Someone said it's not true of Lisbon, which I thought was pretty weird. I would have thought Lisbon was twice as big as what, Porto. I guess. Okay, it's you know Madrid and Barcelona, I suppose, are a bit of an anomaly in that case. But in most cases, it's much more kin. You know, unless you have an enormous country like the US, um, a, you know, Sydney's Sydney's a bit of an anomaly, I guess, as well. But it, you tend to have this, you know, winner takes all effect in terms of city size. And then, of course, transport networks just exacerbated that. 
Um, I mean, you have that weird problem in, Ger in Germany, which is they don't really know where to put the airport because Berlin's the biggest city, but it's not that important from a business point of view. And so you have this kind of Frankfurt, Munich thing. You can't even fly to Berlin with Lufthansa from most places. You can only fly to Berlin with Lufthansa from from Munich from Munich or Frankfurt, and there's nothing else. It's completely weird. Yeah. It's really odd. So, so Rory, coming back to the sort of you, you're known for talking about transport a lot, like the whole sort of Eurostar anecdote from a decade ago or so ago. What what got you? Like transport is a thing that you're passionate about. You're talking. You talked to Rick Rubin about H about like the Intercity One Two Five. I've always wanted to start a podcast where you interview famous intellectuals but talk about totally trivial things. <laughs> there was there was a comedian in Britain and his dream, he'll never fulfill this now, but this British comedian had his lifelong dream was to interview Neil Armstrong and not mention the moon landing spots. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I was, I was a brilliant, you know, so tell me about your early childhood, Neil, you know, and not mention the Apollo missions. I've always wanted to, you know, I've always wanted to interview sort of, you know, I actually had an interview with Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian philosopher, where we spent 30 minutes talking about lavatories because he's fascinated <laughs> by what a lavatory design, like the German inspection platform and so forth, what it tells you about the country. Oh, you and Chris are going to be best friends now. It's, it's, it's funny you mention lavatories because that's come up in transit. I've raised that a number of times in transit. So I managed to have a 10-minute conversation, roughly, with Daniel Kahneman, winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics, after he'd written his book, Noise, which was about a speed camera on the M11 near Chigwell. Because <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my argument was that, that, that if you have a speed camera that catches a lot of people, there are two possible interpretations of that data, one of which is that this is a stretch of road that badly needs a speed camera, or the other thing is that the signage is inadequate and that actually you've simply effectively created a kind of trap by forcing people to decelerate in too short a space of time, which makes them feel uncomfortable, where what, in other words, your imposition of the speed limit is unreasonable. And it is a case where you go from effectively going 80, although the speed limit 70, and suddenly at very short notice, you hit a 50 limit. And shortly after that, you hit a speed camera. And it's a very strong human instinct not to decelerate on a motorway too violently because someone might hit you from behind. Okay. And so I argue that actually the, it's the, position of the speed camera or indeed the speed limit sign that's wrong not the actual behavior of the driver because if your speed camera is or it's a cash machine for or the... it's a cash machine because if your speed camera is catching too many people it could be that it's mis you know it's effectively the calibration of the positioning of the speed camera is wrong and you know and actually the drivers are mostly behaving instinctively in a way that good drivers instinctively do and you're basically just catching them out for doing what is really the right thing um and um uh, but but no, it's a I, I, uh, that that business of uh, you know having a conversation with Rick Rubin about high speed too, and it, it is because it it's a very very stark point. Anything to do with transportation is a very very stark point where you realise that the engineering mentality and and and, and by the way, I I also said today, uh, I said this to some property developers, uh, if you look at businesses that are very male. Okay, that historically the train, you know, the whole train business was historically a load of blokes. I think they suffer from this. I'm not making a diversity and inclusion point, although I sort of am. But they, but a very, very male culture, 
I always say, the, you know, the interesting thing about men is they're highly competitive. And the bad thing about men is they'll compete on any bullshit. You know, if you give a man a metric, he'll try and beat the other bloke's metric, even if it's completely senseless to do it. And I do think that women are, do actually are more likely to ask the question, actually, why are we doing this? And does it really help? You know, and so that very male thing about it's all about running the trains on time, punctually, speed, distance, capacity. OK, all that quantification stuff. Um, effectively, you run into an alignment problem or you run into what you might call quantification bias, which is at some point, you know, get making a train faster, by the way. It's worth noting that to knock 10 minutes off a journey, every time you try and knock 10 minutes off a journey, you don't just have to increase your speed by, say, 20 miles an hour. You have to increase it by 20, then 35, then 60, okay? And then you run into the laws of physics, where to knock another 10 minutes off the journey is just completely energy inefficient, or you use half the train journey accelerating and half of it braking. And so at what point do we say, okay, these metrics have run their course, provided we're in a reasonable range of tolerance in terms of punctuality and capacity and so forth and you know those things still matter i'm not suggesting you can abandon them completely at what point should we start optimizing for something else because we've run out of road here and i think that's true I, the reason i i talk about it a lot is i think in a way that's kind of microcosm or it's emblematic of a kind of problem in society where economic numerical measures absolutely obsess us you know, everything down to kind of quarterly reporting in business, okay, to a point where you can no longer ask, yes, I can see the financial, I can see the balance sheet, but how is the business doing in other ways, reputationally, in terms of repeat custom, in term, you know, in terms of other things which matter mightily, but which you just don't have to have, have, to have a number for. Why won't the transit operators make that change? But you're certainly making convincing arguments and ones that we certainly buy into. Why won't they? Why won't they come around? There's a status question. Okay, I think I think that in every business, there are high status conversations and low status conversations, and part of the problem with that is a lot of the things that consumers care about are actually comparatively trivial. <laughs> you know, okay. To be honest, okay, you can. You know, I, I once stayed in a hotel where. Um, it's in East Berlin, and it was a former, it might have been a Stasi headquarters, but it was certainly a former police station. And your room was a cell, and your bed was a platform above the shower because there wasn't enough space in the cell to have an adequate room. There was a single black and white television as a source of entertainment in your room, which only showed the big Lebowski on continuous loop. I'm not looking it up, okay? <laughs> this is really true, okay? Right, okay. So, well, of course. If you go to sleep and in your sleep you hear the big Lebowski about four times, <laughs> you start waking up and thinking you've gone mad. But what they did is they did apps. They had in the middle of the hotel was an apps. The reason I was, stay I was staying there was Amnesty International had a conference there, which is where I'm speaking. Because if you're Amnesty International, you can't just pitch up at the Ritz Carlton and burn, burn through a million quid. You've got to stay somewhere that's reasonably economical. But at the same time, you want it to be pretty cool. And the one thing this thing did is they had in the middle of the hotel, they had a spectacularly cool coffee shop, which served about the best flat white I've ever had in my life. Actually, probably wasn't a flat white back then. It might have been something else. But it was one of the best coffees I've ever had. I think it was open, rather like the Moxie. It was, you know, a kind of precursor of the Moxie. I think it was open 24 hours a day, the coffee shop. And, you know, the sandwiches, they only did two sandwiches, but they were brilliant, you know. 
And so consumers have surprisingly disproportionate perception and memory of experiences. And yet people instinctively want everything to be kind of linear and proportionate and spreadsheetable. And so there's quantification bias, which is a lot easier to win an argument with numbers than it is with abstract nouns. But the point at which this becomes detached from any kind of consumer concern, where consumers are interested in, there's a great model, David Rock, I mentioned it in my book, SCARF, status, certainty, autonomy, uh, reciprocality, and fairness. You know, that kind of thing, okay? That, you know, those, are the, those are very deep human emotions for which we don't have metrics. Now, an example I give of unfairness would be, okay, this is, you know, you've got a load of people arguing about arguing about, you know, punctuality and so forth. Now, a friend of mine, very good evolutionary biologist called Nicola Raihani and her husband, newly married, were returning from their honeymoon. And the SNCF train into Lille, I think, was late. So they missed their Eurostar. They had advanced tickets on the Eurostar. Okay. Now, the way that currently works with pre-booked train tickets is that you have to pay full price for the ticket on the next train. And the ticket you bought for your previous journey is basically treated as completely void, okay? So you end up paying twice. And now my view is that most punters, people, go, I understand the rules and all that, but that's not really fair. You should at least count what I paid towards my wasted ticket, particularly as it wasn't incompetence on her part. They knew that the incoming train was late. They should have shown some sort of forgiveness, okay? And, you know, one of the things we've got to watch with things like trains is that, you know, I mean, advanced fares, I'm a huge fan of yield management. I'm a huge fan of that kind of thing. But I think, I think you've got to watch the fact that now, you know, she's presumably between the two of them, you know, and they're on their honeymoon. They're wealthy enough for that not to ruin their month. There are a lot of people for whom that unexpected uh, disaster through no fault of their own Financially, that would kind of wreck them for three months, you know, an unexpected £200 expense, okay? Now, and then you go, well, why are people going by car? <laughs> the reason is they already own a car. The marginal cost of using a car is relatively small. And if, if shit hits the fan, you know, okay, well, the car was going to break down anyway. That, you know, suddenly you put yourself on a train and you're entering a whole new field of kind of risk and uncertainty. You also then have the, the 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 people who experience the disruption that it it screws them for three months worth of spare cash. They then take that frustration out on the member of staff on the train or on in the station, and then that leads into the whole sort of um, adversarial, rude, whatever whatever sort of us versus them thing happens. An intelligent organisation would give the discretion to the person effectively selling them the new tickets to say, look. Uh, you know, because but I understand these circumstances. And in that case, look, you know, the, the, the price you paid for the earlier train, you can have that off your full fare ticket. And then people will kind of go, yeah, well, at least I've only paid for a full fare ticket. Whereas as it happens, you're killing them twice. You know, you're hitting them twice. And, uh, you know, and so those little things like, you know, reciprocality, um, the only way in which trains recognize reciprocality is arguably the season ticket, which is you pay less if you travel more frequently. But an airline recognizes reciprocality with a loyalty program where you get a better check-in experience, you might get a lounge, you know, you get priority boarding, etc. Now, shouldn't trains do that, which is that if you have a season ticket, 
shouldn't there be a section of the train with slightly more lavish seating, which is reserved for season ticket holders? Because if you make the journey 200 times a year, you care more about that shit than someone who's making the journey once. You know, I mean, there are whole... What's so interesting is that, you know, there's an awful lot of scope in transport for simple cross-sectoral thinking. And, um, uh, you know, we, we, they, I, don't th I don't think they've been brilliant at saying, actually, a hundred people who make a journey once are very different from one person making a journey a hundred times. How do we differentiate between these two audiences? This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. Find out more, visit boldin.com. He desperately need to airdrop you into conversations in Canada over the train, because a lot of the things you've just talked about are being uh, implemented right now, like, like baggage fees for train passengers and, and moves to make them operate more like airlines. Which is, which is terrible. It's terrible. The Eurostar, one of my, one of my criticisms of the Eurostar is it's got all the worst aspects of air travel translated into a train. So the fact that, for example, you're corralled in a kind of waiting area in limbo until about seven minutes before the train departs. Now, one thing we love about trains, that I understand, okay, a plane costs a bloody fortune. I get the fact you've got to clean it, you've got to do security checks with a plane. I get that, okay? I would love it in a plane if they just... Uh, there is only one occasion where it happened, which is there used to be a BA business class only flight from London City to New York. And there were generally so few people on the plane because it was a 757 with only business class seating. They basically said, look, we were sitting in a kind of lounge. And they said, basically, the, well, the plane's ready for boarding. Any time in the next 10, 15 minutes, you want to wander on board, just get on the plane. And the boarding experience was, of course, lovely. Now, one of the nice things about a train, which they don't do well enough, is that business of only announcing the platform at the very last minute. Now, again, yes, you've got a bit of train cleaning, but I'm not that annoyed if someone comes and cleans out the rubbish while I'm sitting on the train. You know, I get the fact, you know, you, you know there, there may be some but actually, I'll tell you a lovely thing. There's a there's a weird 11.33 train from Cannon Street to Oxford, which I absolutely love taking if I've got to go home from London late. And the main reason I love it is because it sits on the platform for about 25 minutes before it departs because there's no shortage of platforms at Cannon Street. And so I just saunter up. I'm usually about 15, 20 minutes early. And I basically just blag a seat and open a table and do a bit of work or do a bit of reading. And so that business of making trains more like aircraft is a fundamental mistake. I mean, one of the things I'd most love to do would be find a technological way to get rid of ticket barriers in some way. You know, so that effectively you maybe even you sit down and then you buy your ticket. Okay? Because, you know, those kind of things are just... I, I know there's all the revenue protection stuff, but it might... There must be, there must be a technological way what I was going to say is it flies in the face of the way things have traditionally been operated. They're, yep. they're very uh, heightened down, process-heavy engineering, uh, consistent with the engineering background. You mentioned uh, people should have the discretion to make ticketing decisions. In a lot of places, that discretion is actually removed. 
I get it. I get it. It can be abused. I get it. It can be abused, and people people sell their mates tickets at a bit of a discount. I get. I get. You know. I get the problem. But 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 it is implemented in some places. Yeah, it is in in Germany. At, uh, we were there at Intertrans. You just walk on. You buy a ticket, sure, but there's nobody checking your ticket. And you just walk on. So some places have implemented. Some yeah, France. Stuff. You had that composte. You composte le billet, don't you? And the, the, now, okay, that's harder for suburban train routes, etc. I get, I get all the problems, but nonetheless, I probably have a strong preference for Oxford Station over Sevenoaks because of the complete absence of barriers. You know, you park basically next to the platform and you just saunter on, and you know, the good, you know, and I suppose. You know, with the app system, there's no reason why you can't buy a ticket once you've boarded the train now. Well, to encourage you, uh, we, we have had that request direct us. We've had an operator come to us and say, I don't want any barriers. I don't want a conductor going down and checking everybody's ticket. I just want to know they've paid. Figure it out. That's a great brief. That's a, that's a great brief because one of the lessons from behavioral science is if you reduce friction, it's a really big win. One of my criticisms of marketing is we spend all the time heaping on positives. And the, the in many ways, the best payback comes from removing negatives, removing friction, removing uncertainty, removing, maybe this is a status question as well, you know, the, the minor humiliation of being treated as, you know, as if you're kind of necessary trying to blag a free journey. And then there are also important things, which is that people don't care about efficiency and low prices to the extent, okay, well, rather, some people do, but a hell of a lot of people don't. And so the other thing I'd say is, you know, the train companies haven't experimented enough with uh, capturing the consumer surplus. One train company in um, in the UK, which is Avanti, a lot of people say it's the only good thing they did, which is probably a bit unfair. But they've introduced this middle class, which is like first class seating without the bling. You don't get lounge access. You don't get a free meal. You don't get free catering. You know, you don't necessarily get to sit next to plutocrats or whatever, but nonetheless, you get pretty nice seats and a table and a plug. And that, you know, that's kind of, I, I think that mid-class thing is quite quite clever. Um, but there's another reason I'm a big fan of, of, of reasonably priced first-class rail, which is if you want to get someone out of the car, okay, first-class rail is kind of nicer than driving and second-class rail kind of is, okay? So, you know, if you don't have an option for people who... And, and what generally, I've written about this recently, what generally happens with markets is that economists think there's this smooth price quality trade-off, okay, where people basically make a trade-off between price and quality. But generally, markets are kind of bifurcated between people who are principally price-focused and people who are principally quality-focused. And so, the you know, the mid-market isn't always that great a place to be um, because, you know, there's a money-no-object brigade or there are people who wanted to be as nice as possible, and there are people who wanted to be as cheap as possible. And broadly speaking, one or the other mindset tends to prevail. So you know, the Southeastern trains in the UK got rid of first class, which was stupid because I was paying, you know, paying them quite a lot of money every year, basically just to be sure of getting a table. I wasn't occupying any more floor space than anybody else. And um, that kind of thing actually matters. You know, unfortunately, I found this other train which isn't that crowded which solves the problem. But, I mean, that was a dumb thing to do because I would willingly pay the extra money, effectively just for a bit of elbow room and to have a place to put your laptop back, you know. And um, uh, so, that, you know, that I think looking at, 
I mean, there are other questions, you know. This is a very interesting argument a friend of mine had with Richard Thaler, who also won the Nobel Prize for Economics, which was, what should we do with station retail? Should you let the market decide or should you curate it? Okay. And one of the questions, he and I both thought that there are things that are very useful to commuters, okay, which can't actually find an economic niche because you always end up with station retail being, like airport retail, it's full of high margin shit. Because the margin on coffee is huge. There's a bloody thing. There's a paper chase and a thing called post haste or something at London Bridge, which sell greetings cards. Now, the margins on greeting cards are whack, okay? You pay sort of £3.50 of them. They cost about 4p, right? I mean, the actual margins are huge. So you get all this high margin retail on stations when what you really might want is a post office and a dry cleaner or shoe repair or something of that kind. You know, there is a shoe repair place in London Bridge, actually but it's in a slightly obscure bit of the concourse. But, um, but you know, the argument is if you allow the market to decide completely what the station retailers are, um, you'll end up with sort of homogeneous, slightly annoying, you know, um, a bit like Heathrow Terminal 5, which is trying, trying to recreate the Rue du Faubourg Saint-Honoré, you know. Okay, enough luxury <laughs> goods already. I just want to buy some sun can cream. Oh, that's downstairs in an obscure little corner of the airport because... This was the missed opportunity of like I know there was like the U-turn of um, closing ticket offices and stations because probably wasn't great for Tory voters, but without wishing to be too cynical. But actually, like there's all that there's all that space. There were other reasons they should have considered there, which is that generally all marketing teaches you that the more the more ways you sell something, the more you sell. Okay, I wrote a bit about this, but there's another issue, which is that um, one argument against ticket offices. Okay. If there's one, there's nothing more annoying than be, than queuing for a ticket machine behind someone who's incompetent at using a ticket machine. Okay, and and what you would do is you drive the people. I'm not stereotyping them. They they may be older because using a smartphone is just harder if you're older. All sorts of things. Eyesight, your skin's drier, so touch screens aren't so good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, okay. Um, uh, there are a whole bunch of reasons, you know, where and and there are people who want to ask questions, right? Well, let the people who know what they want to buy from a machine and the people who want to ask a question. The last thing you want is people putting in seven different iterations of their journey to try and find the lowest price in a machine when you're queuing behind them and you just want to buy a bloody return to London terminals. So, and also, it was an example of what I call the doorman effect, which is you define the doorman in the hotel as the man, as his function is opening the door. You automate it, get rid of the doorman, and lay claim to the cost saving. But there are a whole load of things that the ticket office do, which is you know security, advice, um, actually relationships as well, because you don't get this in London much. But um, if you go to a more provincial rail station, a there's a bit of banter and warmth and chat because they're you know Northerners or Welsh or whatever. But also you get the thing where you go up and say, "Can I have a ticket to London, please?" And they say, "Well, actually." I'll get you a ticket from Deal to Dover. That's peak time. But by the time you get from Dover, you can buy an off-peak ticket. So I'll sell you an off-peak ticket from Dover to, to St. Pancras, okay? Well, try doing that in a fucking machine, right? You can't. You can only buy a ticket from the station because they're, they're called shite and backman with the emphasis on the shite. <laughs> Seth, Seth Gordon calls those people linchpins. He calls them linchpins. Those people they are making I'd, I'd really spot a great organisation by the fact that they there's a... There are a few call center staff who are paid like a six-figure sum, 
because the very, very best customer service people are worth three times more than their pay. If you act, you can't measure the effect, unfortunately, but the linchpin is exactly the right description for that person because they go, well, I, I don't know what ticket to buy to London, but if I ask Dave, I mean, literally, that would happen at a provincial station. Yeah. I'll go and ask Dave and he'll, he'll tell me. It confuses the, the physical space with the people. And I think maybe closing ticket offices was actually a way of, we want to lay off 10,000 people rather than actually be, let's keep the people, but what can we do best? What can we do differently with the physical environment? I think that's the thing that may, I think people, I think airlines get that better, but I don't think train companies or railway operators or even the government that funds it does. I would also return to your description of the, uh, the people who need help buying tickets, the people who need extra time. A lot of those ticket machines were developed by engineers. A lot of those things don't have a lot of behavioral science. Exactly. And there's a lot of things like that in stations. We've done a lot of work in stations. There's a lot of things like that in stations that are just completely overlooked. Um, new people to stations, visitors, tourists, uh, immigrants, completely underserved in the vast majority of stations, possibly in the world. Why is there so little attention paid to stations? You talked about the retail, how it should be and how it's not managed. We went to Inatrans. I think we saw the word stations three or four times in 28 giant buildings. You know, they're little, when you look at yeah, status certainty. I mean, one of the things I love about Charing Cross in London, which is kind of boutique station along with Marlborough, okay, they're really, they're pretty central, but they're also small and manageable, is you have the little, you know, both of them have the, effectively the port cochere, as Americans call it, you know, the drive up thing. Actually, I think in Marlborough, you are actually undercover, you're not at Charing Cross, but there's a space where cars can draw up and drop you off and you basically get out of the car and you're in the station you know, it's a very elegant kind of process, which the Victorians understood. I mean, Toronto, the main station in Toronto, is it York Street? A fantastic station. Yeah, Union Station. Union yeah. Station, yeah. I went in there, I demanded, I was walking down the street, and I demanded of my agency colleagues that we go in there, because for a Brit, okay, where the typical destination is something like Dorking or Rygate, okay, which is 30 miles away, going and looking at train departure boards which say medicine hat, okay, it's just, I know for a Canadian, for a Canadian, this is completely banal, but for me, this was absolutely magical. And, um, uh, but um, yeah, we, we've lost that and we've created this kind of utilitarian station, which is completely lacking. And the, there are a few exceptions. Blackfriars Station in London, which they built across the river. So the station is on a bridge and therefore serves both banks of the river, is absolutely gorgeous. London Bridge, they spent about half a billion pounds. And St. Pancras is brilliant, okay? Uh, but that's basically a, a build on to a great Victorian edifice. Um, uh, with London Bridge, they spend half a billion pounds. It improves the through, through flow of trains, but actually to the passengers, it isn't much better. It is, it's a bit better, but it's got these annoying ticket barriers. So half the retail is out of bounds to you, effectively, if you're changing trains and things like that. I mean, they, had, they didn't think that through at all. Um, and so... And also the complete dearth of seating. Now, this is a really interesting thing. There's the logical solution to a problem, and there's the, what you might call the intuitive or sometimes counterintuitive solution to the problem. Uh, there's the empathetic solution to a problem. I met someone once who was like the UK's walking czar, and it's the person in, you know to, who exists to promote walkability. 
And they were doing what's a perfectly logical thing for a walking star to do, which is, you know, making sure there were lots of footpaths everywhere. And I said, you might have got this wrong, mate, I said, because I, I, at the time I was suffering from sciatica, which was really bad, re, you know, recurrent back pain, which was like a kind of, it was like a simulation of being 20 years older or, or 15 years older than I currently am. And I said, actually, there are loads of places to walk. The reason people don't walk is because there's nowhere to sit down. Okay. The reason a lot of cities aren't really walkable is that you walk for, now, you know, if you're young, you may just want to sit down to look at your mobile phone. I've never mastered that business of using a phone while walking. I just don't do it. I want to sit down and check something. Right? And I said, what you actually need to make cities more walkable is more benches. It's not more paths. Because people can then confidently go for a bit of a stroll, knowing that if they're a mile from home or a mile from their destination and they're a bit tired or they got a bit of back pain, they can actually have a little sit down. And you never notice a shortage of people walking by the seaside. That's partly because it's a seaside and it's a nice place to walk. But it's also because you get tons of benches, you know, and it's it's naturally conducive to walking. And so, you know, things like toilet provision, again, is totally neglected in London Bridge. And actually for the elderly, I mean, one great lesson is if you design for the disabled, you design for everybody. You know, ramps for wheelchairs are also great if you've got wheelie luggage, for example. You know, door handles are, you know, are better than doorknobs, that's my great point. But actually, you know, the, the real reason for that is that you mandate door handles because people with arthritis might have lost the use of the grip of their hands. But equally, someone carrying two mugs of coffee has lost, lost, lost the use of both their hands. And they can use an elbow to open a door handle, which you can't do with a doorknob. The natural reaction we get when we suggest more seats is that uh, having a lot of seating in certain places, public areas, even in stations, this happens a lot, will will encourage the presence of undesirables, let's say. Yeah. And and so the problem, the solution to that is just get rid of all the seats, which is not great for everybody else. And this is a problem, this is a recurring problem in transit we keep hearing over and over again that safety and security is the number one concern. And it's not exclusively a transit concern, but transit has to deal with it every day. And obviously some places are better than others. Amsterdam, Sweden, lovely. Uh, North America, there's a lot of places that uh, we described as being very stabby these days. So you have more seats and you have more potential trouble. So the solution is just get rid of the seats. Was the counterintuitive version of that is just make it nicer. So if you make if you made really nice seats, the people who are around it might look after them better and they're kept cleaner by the, the station staff. Like This is a silly analogy, but I was in... Amman the other day and I went to like the Royal Automobile Museum because the king is obsessed with cars but they had benches all the way around the museum that are made out of the boot lids of Mercedes E200s and it's like that that one they're beautiful but like you would never treat an, an, an artifact like that badly. A great colleague of mine behavioral scientist called Nick Southgate said that it's there's something nice about the fact that the London Tube has cloth seating not white clean seating it's kind of respecting you know it's more difficult to write on as well which might be an advantage because the problem with the white clean seating is you know even even when i when i've got a sharpie in my pocket even i'm tempted right okay um uh, but but actually the cloth is sort of respecting the that people perform according to how you you know expectation to a degree and i agree if you produce a very very attractive environment and that would include things, you know, things like, you know, possibly flower beds and plants, okay, 
generally it will have a positive effect. You know, you can use color, all sorts of, there's the famous thing called drunk tank ink. Um, there's an old book about drunk tank ink, um, which is, you know, that you can use design effectively to solve that problem. It just requires a bit more ingenuity rather than just, we'll get rid of the seats. And, um, you know, you, you know, I mean, you might argue that um, I, I, vagrants are technically among architects called tertiary users. It's a brilliant phrase, which is that the primary user is the commissioning client. OK, that we network rail. The secondary user is the paying customer, which is the passenger. And the tertiary user is the vagrant. Yeah, I remember learning that. I had a friend at university who did architecture. And I thought it's a great euphemism, you know. I think we've I think we got a few tertiary users. <laughs> I'm stealing that for sure. But but it, it it is it is fascinating because I'm sure those cathedral-like railway structures had an effect on the passengers in all kinds of ways emotionally. First of all, you know, there was the sheer optimism of it, which is saying, you know, we're building a temple here. It's not just a utilitarian thing. This is something. Rory, why have you never been hired by the Department for Transport to fix Britain's woeful railways? Interestingly, the book has been quite widely read. And the simple fact is that, uh, you know, if you take, say, the Heathrow pod as an example, okay, I don't think the Heathrow pod wins on any numerical measure of speed or capacity, okay? What's significant about it is that and the evidence of this is that the price of the pod parking is not all that unadjacent to the price of short-stay parking, even though it's closer to the long-stay car park, which is much cheaper, than it is to the actual terminal itself, which suggests somehow that people don't consider a pod journey. They consider it to be a, a utility, not a disutility, if you like. And that psychological discovery that actually, if you have a park and ride, or if you had a parkway station, and the only place you could build a car park was a mile away from the train, but you basically provided a pod system of transportation. The fact that people would find that perfectly enjoyable and acceptable is actually quite important. It's an important discovery because it's a behavioral discovery, which is independent of the usual metrics of how fast do the pods go and what's their capacity. And... Um, I think I think that I think there's scope for a kind of thing in London which is in between a taxi and a bus, which is a kind of thing that drives around at twenty miles an hour in which you sit in relative comfort and protection from the elements with your shit, you know, without any fear that your stuff's gonna get stolen. Okay. You know, and you can you know, I th I think there's scope, you know, in the next twenty years for something some form of transit which is not particularly fast, but just, you know, disproportionately pleasant. I think you know. I think the pod is a kind of glimpse of that future. You, you mentioned it a couple of times, and in, in some of your talks, that um, making the journey more pleasant is often more important, or yeah, should be perceived as more important than shaving off three minutes. If you look at trains, for example, versus driving. What's the USP of the train? Okay, other than first-class air travel. It's the only mode of transport in which you can work just as effectively as you would in an office or at home, under good circumstances with a decent table and really good connectivity. Okay, so don't don't try and compete with airlines on actual speed because you're going to lose. Okay, go what 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 you should do if you're looking at the whole thing holistically is go and find what airline if you want people to go on the Eurostar, find what's most irritating and 
on the about the air journey and don't do that thing okay right you know in other words you know find all the aspects that and, and the great thing about the Eurostar is you're sitting in one place for what was two hours 40 minutes let's say okay and it's all relatively high quality time you can look out of the window you can watch a film you can work you know um but the weird thing was they spent six billion uh increasing the journey uh, increasing the speed okay and 10 years later pretty much they introduced wi-fi on the trains <laughs> now yeah all, all i'm saying i'm not saying don't make the trains faster but that has to be the wrong way around okay that has to be the wrong way around you know that business of corralling you in a waiting area that's really crowded while you're waiting to board the train and then everybody has to board the train simultaneously that's a Obviously, we agree with you on the communications and the importance of communications. Yeah. <laughs> but the government has come out and said, well, maybe we don't need Wi-Fi after all. Wait, maybe we should start removing it. Is that the Canadian government? No, the British. The British government. They did, they did a survey and, and determined that Wi-Fi ranked too low in the survey because people wanted to get there uh, reliably and alive and within a certain yeah. amount of time of their scheduled arrival okay. time. I grant the fact that some degree of relative predictability, although, you know, I get the knock-on effect. So punctuality is important to practice for other reasons other than the passenger benefit, which is just the efficient running of a network, because there's always a kind of knock-on effect at times of high rail use. But equally, the fact that train operators in the UK are fined if they arrive into London into a terminus four minutes late is stupid, because no one, no one unless you're Swiss or only retentive, leads their life to that degree of precision, right? You know, I mean, okay, I guess if your office is right next to the station, you might leave a much lower margin of error. But everybody's leaving a 10-minute margin of error, a 15-minute margin of error, because they've got an onward journey in, the most, in most cases, and there might not be a taxi, the tubes might be up the spout, etc. So I thought that research is very, very dubious. It's extremely dubious research, and obviously... Obviously, Wi-Fi isn't going to, you know, compare with not dying, okay? Not dying <laughs> yeah. horrible. Yeah, yeah. In a heap of mangled wreckage, okay? It's not really commensurable. I can give you a parallel case to this, which is range anxiety in electric cars. Now, there's a word range, which is an engineering problem, and there's a word anxiety, which is a psychological problem. A very astute YouTuber, an American, actually, and I'll, I'll explain why I think... It, particularly astute for Americans to say this, because I think in the US and to some extent Canada, range is an issue because those countries are big, okay? And you know, you might have parents who live, you know, your kids are at university 300 miles away, your parents live 400 miles away, you can't fly and there's no rail alternative in many cases, okay? So the range of your car is actually a factor in the US to a greater extent than it is in the UK, where you know a lot of our journeys are pretty short, it's very densely populated relatively small country um now certainly lot most parts of it are densely populated in the north of scotland different issue but the, the american youtuber made the brilliant point that it's not really range anxiety it's infrastructure anxiety in other words if you're confident that you can charge you're not anxious about range and that probably requires actually um one thing it requires is redundancy actually having two or three different charges of a different make in the same location okay that gives confidence you can solve infrastructure anxiety by just going to google and saying when people use apple carplay or android auto uh have a function where it basically bings you and says there's an available charger 
you know, four miles ahead, which isn't being used, you know, 120 kilowatts an hour, you know, whatever. Okay. And it just constantly reassures you that you're only four or five miles from an available charger. And, you know, driving out of London, I kind of tried that by kind of tweaking the search terms. And, it, you know, they're a hell of a lot of bloody charges. You just don't see them and you're not aware of them because they're not as visible as a gas station and they don't have to be on a major thoroughfare, okay? And that, you know, so you have a visibility problem with chargers, which is they're not very big, you know, unless you made them glow or fire out laser beams, which would be a bad <laughs> idea, actually, okay, right? You know, you know, they're fundamentally less visible than gas stations are. Um, and so infrastructure anxiety is a psychological problem which can be solved a lot more easily than range anxiety because to solve range, you've got to have bigger, heavier, more expensive batteries which make the cars heavier and make the cars more expensive than they maybe need to be and the performance slightly worse and so on and so forth. Um, you know, there are other factors in the UK, like we've got, you know, um, over here we've got 240 volts. So actually just plugging into your dad's plug Okay, it's not brilliant, but it's overnight is not a total waste of time at 240 volts. Whereas in the US, you know, you plug into a standard US socket and good luck, you know. And um, so there are lots of reasons why you can, ways in which you can reassure people. Okay. Um, and actually, you know, that would mean that Brits could have more electric cars per volume of battery per, and, and they could be cheaper, lighter, uh, you know, more efficient. Uh, and so forth, and with better performance, actually, um, and more economical as a consequence of not having to carry all that weight around. But the problem to solve, obviously, there's a technological problem, but there's also a psychological one. And the psychological one is a lot easier to solve, I would argue. You can solve that with software and information and general reassurance. This is this thing that I think gets lost of, like, technology. And like we with Bolden, we talk a lot about connectivity because it's a connectivity business. But connectivity has historically been an engineer's realm of this is what we can do with the tech, not necessarily the marketers or the psychologist realm of actually what does the person using it think or feel. So when we look at it, we like it might be wayfinding. It might be when I arrive at York Station, how long will I have to wait for a bus? Where do I go for the bus? What will the bus be like? Will there be a USB port to charge my phone on it? Yada, yada, yada. I think connectivity is the thing that is the, is the is the common glue for all of that, but we see very few behavioral scientists, marketers, psychologists in that realm really shaping it. That's I guess that's why we're so keen to talk to you. The marketing is effectively brought in at the last minute to add a few bells and whistles to a product or a price proposition or whatever it may be that's been conceived by engineers and economists. And it's an issue... I mean, Richard Thaler, funnily enough, said something similar. He said his experience of government says that government is an organization where politicians take advice from lawyers and occasionally consult economists. Anybody else interested in helping the lawyers out need not apply. Okay. And there is this fundamental problem, which is that everything's looked at through the lens of a kind of, in a sense, okay, a kind of pseudoscience, or, you know, a pseudoscientific kind of um, model, okay, which which bears an increasingly detached relationship, I think, from real-world passenger concerns. And the metrics start to drive all the behaviours then, because people get bonused on the metrics, and metrics are then used comparatively. Is your year-on-year -year score on this particular thing better? 
And actually, the only way to use metrics is probably to get rid of them every few years and replace them with completely different metrics or to have kind of heuristic metrics a little bit, which are kind of, you know, um, uh, essentially slightly more subjective. And um, I always remember that Richard Taylor was involved in a kind of behavioral science investment firm. And I said, OK, do you bonus the staff on targets? And he said, no, they have targets and we measure them, but we actually bonus them subjectively because you can't. You, you can't decontextualize someone's value by simply looking at a number. You know, they may have had an extremely adverse trading conditions. Uh, they may make a huge contribution to the firm in other less measurable ways. It's absolutely dumb to try and reduce these things to algorithms. And I think that's what we're trying to do because it's the instinct of everybody to try and re uh, to borrow your compatriot, Roger L. Martin, who you'll know as the former dean of the Rotman um, uh, Business School in Toronto. Um, but he's, you know, he said that, you know, effectively businesses become profitable because you take, you take a mess and then you re reduce it to heuristics, then you reduce the heuristics to an algorithm, then you reduce the algorithm to code. Okay. And it's incredibly automated and very, very effective and scalable if you do this. But the problem is there's a hidden cost to doing it in many cases. Not least, I mean, sometimes your code is out of date because fashions change, the context changes, circumstances change. Or all your competitors are now optimizing for the same thing, in which case you actually end up being undifferentiated. You know, and so you create this kind of race to the bottom where everybody's competing to be slightly better than their competitors on exactly the same measure. And that that tends to be, you know, a negative sum game. It's there's kind of positive competition, which is divergent, and there's negative competition, which is kind of convergent. And you know, there's a wonderful Roger L. Martin sort of graph where he says an economist's vision of perfect efficiency is lots of overlapping companies all competing to do the same thing at the lowest price. And his vision of perfect competition is where you have lots of companies actually differentiating themselves or at least, you know, uh, distinguishing themselves by focusing on different things, so, which, of course, increases consumer choice uh, rather than just creating a kind of stupid efficiency battle, which which basically ends up with the result that things become uh, annoyingly shit to anybody who isn't exclusively motivated by price. And you also get this problem, I think, in markets, which is someone wrote a piece called The Curse of the Marginal User. And in order to fill a plane, okay, you've got to get the 30% of tightwads on board that plane, because otherwise the plane isn't full. <laughs> But the it's me. but the problem the problem with those type ones is that you end up doing something barbaric like the Boeing seven eight seven was designed for two four two seating in economy that's what Boeing envisaged okay and two four seating two four two seating where it exists which is only JAL and ANA I think only the Japanese airlines I may, I may be wrong there but I think that's the only case when you have two four two economy seating it's family friendly. Personally, I'd charge more for the pair seats near the window than the four seats in the middle. I'd actually say, okay, it's £20 extra, okay? Particularly if you're traveling with your wife, because you don't generally mind um, sitting in close proximity with someone you share bodily fluids with, you know? <laughs> Whereas, or, you know, a member of your immediate family is fine, but sitting next to a total stranger is a bit of a gamble and a bit unpleasant. Now, you know, that was lovely, but every single airline other than JAL and ANA squeezed in an extra seat. They made it 333, which is a horrible formation because it creates an extra middle seat, effectively. Okay. Um, okay. 
And it's not very family friendly, but also you end up with that appalling width problem where every seat is just a bit too narrow. And, it, it, you know, it makes the thing horrible. And of course, the battle for the marginal skinflint consumer, which has, if you like, it has short-term gains because you do get the skinflints to board your plane. Unfortunately, what you're doing is you're orienting your economy class to appeal to the least valuable sort of consumer there is, which is someone who has no interest other than getting there as cheaply as possible. They're, they're, you know, they're unprofitable and they're generally a pain in the ass. It, you know, it's rather like what, what went wrong with cinema, which was that in chasing, I think, Chinese teenage audiences, which are, you know, effectively, you know, the marginal consumer in film, you ended up with nobody over the age of 30 with a brain wants to go to the cinema anymore because I'm old school. I like my films to obey the laws of physics. You know, I don't want superpowers. I want two French people having a chat, you know. And, um, and so if you like that kind of cinema, with the exception of Scorsese, no one's making it anymore. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks. Have you checked out our Stations of the Future white paper yet? We've undertaken an extensive study of transit stations, their stakeholders, their strengths, and their shortcomings, all framed by the needs and expectations of passengers. The intent is to design a model for a station that operators should strive to achieve in the coming years. Our observations, analysis, and a plan for the way forward are outlined in the white paper. To find out more, visit bolden.com. As somebody who flew back from Frankfurt the other day with Lufthansa on a 787, I was sat in the aisle, but the man in the middle seat had Tourette's. I would really have appreciated if that flight was 242, you know? <laughs> was it the sweary Tourette's or, or... It was mostly physical tick Tourette's, but there were two incidents of a ship. What, what, what was the swearing? Because it could have been induced by the 333 seating configuration, actually. He might not have had Tourette's when he boarded. It was simply a product of the... Uh... <laughs> One was midway through him watching a movie... And he was laughing, and then suddenly he just exclaimed "Scheiße," which is Shit. it's quite. I think Tourette's is funnier in German than it is in English. <laughs> but yeah, I would I, at that point. I'm like, yeah, I should not be that tightwad. And I read, then read your your spectator ask. I'm like, yeah, can we not just make this like nicer for him and me? Mar that marginal consumer, you know, which you have to compete for, uh, you know, and actually. What then happens is you get really good businesses in the early stages, okay, whether it's mobile phone networks where they're basically catering to early adopters who care about quality and, you know, care about customer service and other things like that. And then, unfortunately, the competition then focuses on that marginal consumer, which might be, you know, the person who doesn't really care about quality, who's just kind of, kind of indifferent to everything except price. And I think everybody else suffers as a consequence. We all, you know, we, one of the things we ought to say is that the very rich have a very bad effect on markets because they basically opt out of markets and they fly private or something. Um, but the, the you know, very, and I, I sympathize completely with people who are simply short of money, but very mean people are actually a form of market distortion. It's a bit, uh, the example of that, if you just come back from Frankfurt, is German retail, German grocery retail where for what it may have changed, it may have improved since then. But even the Dutch, who are fairly major skin <laughs> okay, have a thing called Albert Hyde, yes. kind of, you know, classy kind of retailer, okay? Now, the Germans, for some reason, and a lot of Americans, by the way, as well, basically buy groceries on price and on deal, you know? 
and you get these fucking coupons door drop through your door. You know, ah, it's unbeside price. Okay, and then the weird phenomenon in Germany where you get kind of S class Mercedes lined up outside Lidl. Okay, and you go, fuck, you know, I get it. You all like a bit of a bargain, but come on, get your, you know. And actually, you know, British British grocery retail, I think, is pretty good because you know there is actually a spectrum of people who care about price and quality, and you get a huge amount of variety. And British grocery retail, you know, if there's one thing when you come back from France or Germany or anybody else, and you go and do M and S Simply Food or Sainsbury's or whatever, you know, genuinely, uh, the French grocery retail is mostly dedicated to the sale of yogurt. For some reason, I don't fully understand. <laughs> I mean, how much fucking yogurt do these people need? There's like a yogurt aisle, which is... Are the French Canadians the same? Do they have the same yogurt obsession? It's yogurt and wine. That's that's half the grocery store in France. How's it going on? You know, uh, you know. And, um, but I mean, you know, I mean, there is undoubtedly this kind of deformative effect, which I think comes from chasing that kind of marginal consumer. And, um, you know, rail, I mean, it's kind of complicated. But I'm, you know, one of the things I love rail to do I've talked to the people at the GB Rail transition team. Is one brand partnerships okay? Now you won't remember this, but when I was a kid, Personal Automatic Washing Powder did this thing where if you collected like six box tops and you sent off for a rail card, you also got like a free rail journey anywhere in the country with your family. But the reason I'm big and big fan of promotion is if you can get rail rejectors and obsessive card users. Okay, just onto the trains four times a year on an off-peak train that isn't Christmas or Easter where there's a load of engineering work and where there's massive overcrowding and all sorts of disruption to the, oh, fuck, I'm never doing that again, which is one of the problems. The most infrequent rail users tend to use rail at the time when it's worst. Yeah, By definition, a crowded train has more people on it than a, a non-crowded train. If you actually go at you know, 11 o'clock in the morning from London to Manchester, Train travel's lovely on Wednesday, right? It's lovely. So incentivizing people to discover the good side of train travel so that at least the next time they're thinking, I've got to go to Manchester, they think, should I go by train or should I go by car rather than just defaulting to the car? And the second thing I'd love to do is loads and loads of what Procter & Gamble called commercial innovation, which is like, you know, now Germans have this thing called um, the the... I'm going to praise the German railways, who I think are magnificent. I've been very rude about German grocery retail habits, so I think I should. But you have this thing called, a, I think there's a bond card 50, a bond card 100, and a bond card 25. You pay quite a lot of money for that, but if you buy the bond card 50, all your basic rail journeys are 50% off. Okay? And so it's like Amazon Prime, pay once, save many times. Okay? That's a really good idea, I think. You could also do things. One of the things I've been begging for is an off-peak season ticket. Okay. Now, and the other, the other one, I actually spoke to the, the property development industry and said, if you could buy a seven-year season ticket from rail companies and offer it as an incentive to buy the house, would you be keen on that? And they all went, yeah, that'd be fucking fantastic. You know, buy this flat in whatever in Bromley and get seven years free commuting. Okay. We'd love to do that. It's an offer to sell a house, right? Okay. Now, um, the interesting thing there, I think, is that um, the rail companies can't offer that because they're, you know, the length of their bloody, what is it, not a contract, what do they call it, the franchise. Franchise, yeah. And actually, the amount of innovation that the government needs to really incentivize this kind of innovation, 
One thing I'd do, by the way, would be pensioners, people over 60, okay, should be able to pay a thousand pounds a year, quite a lot of money, okay, and basically you get to go on any train like, I don't know what it'd be, Tuesday to Thursday, all right? You basically get to stay on any train you like off peak for like five quid, okay? You know, no, okay, you get a load of old biddies tooling up to the north of Scotland, etc. Great, well, fantastic. No one minds old people. They don't start a fight generally. You know, they're generally quite docile, okay? But I mean, you know... Scottish tea houses will be delighted. delighted you know. <laughs> and actually, that you know, that would be a, you know, that, you know, that's the kind of... I never understood why hotels don't do enough of this, okay? Which is kind of like... um one one thing I've always suggested to hotels is, you know, the second room's half price if you've got kids, okay? Because yeah, you're obviously not travelling in business if you're taking your kids with you. You're barely travelling for pleasure, to be absolutely honest. Okay. <laughs> but, 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 um, but, you know, all the, the Holiday Inn hotel chain actually started with this second room at half price offer. That's how they got started, because they realised that motels weren't family-friendly in their pricing, because... You know, you're paying for two rooms every time you stay. And, you know, so if you think about it, a, a, a couple, a dual income couple with no kids are paying for one room out of two incomes. And quite often a family are paying for two rooms out of one income. So it's four times as expensive proportionally. You know, that's why McDonald's invented the Happy Meal, etc. you know, to make it affordable for families to go and actually, you know, basically, uh, you know, eat, eat at a foursome. That's why, that's why KFC has the bargain bucket. Okay. Now they do have a four together deal with Rail, I think, which is quite good. Which I think is, is it half price or whatever. Um, but actually promoting those things more heavily, but doing the kind of thing where you know the off-peak season ticket, where you have a certain number of car days to upgrade to peak, but you can travel after say 10 a.m. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people who moved out of, you know, a hell of a lot of people I think who move out of London would really like that because it could be pretty cheap. All, all all of those ideas are brilliant, but I I. Coming from North America, I think of the public servants in the transit organizations, and I, I don't I don't know if there's a disincentive to be creative or uh, a learned helplessness. Uh, there there is because the fi the finance people, the finance people are massively risk averse, and if you come to them with any pricing idea, despite the fact, okay, th there aren't many businesses where you can say this outside the digital sphere. Every incremental ticket you sell, you sell on an off-peak train in the UK, okay, every incremental ticket you sell is basically pure profit, right? You're running, you're running the trains anyway. They aren't full. If you sell a seat that would otherwise be empty, it's 100% profit. Now, there aren't many cases where that's true. So you'd think the incentive to get incremental journeys would be really, really high because it's pure beer money, okay? Straight to the bottom line, effectively. And yet, if you talk to the finance people in rail companies, they're obsessed with this thing called revenue abstraction or revenue cannibalization, which is, oh, but if we make it cheaper for people... I mean, I actually had this thing with British Airways, okay, where they used to do this thing where you'd pitch up, you had a business class ticket, non-check-in, or even when you checked it online, it would say, find out if you can upgrade to first at a special price. And sometimes it'd be like 300 quid to upgrade to first on a flight, yeah. I, you know, I did transatlantic, it might be 500, okay? And, you know, one time in five, you go, ah, fuck it, <laughs> right? Because you get a load of extra Avios points, so you get into the gold tier next year, and you just go, ah, fuck it, you know, I'm tired of a, you know, grueling trip, okay? 
And then it made them a fortune. I know that because I spoke to the person who kind of invented it and it made them a fortune. And they got rid of it because they were convinced that full fare first beat. Now, bear in mind, you only got offered this about a third of the time when first was particularly empty. All right. And again, it was pure beer money because the cost of serving a first class passenger is not much. Okay. And the seat was going to be empty anyway. And they got rid of it because the finance people were convinced that, like, Beyonce would go, I'm not <laughs> going to book a first-class ticket. I'm going to book a business-class ticket and take the chance. There are only 30,000 people in the world, apparently, who are basically universally first-class passengers who just go first-class everywhere. You, you know, okay, it's a tiny number of people. And those people want the absolute certainty that they're pitching up, they're going to be seated in seat 1A, and no one's going to dick with them, okay? But I'm not, you know, okay? Now, for some reason, BA got rid of that because of the totally deluded belief that kind of, you know, Beyonce or, you know, Bill Gates or someone are going to go, oh, let's gain the system, right? <laughs> to say, it, it, it's just a nonsense. But they're absolutely convinced that this stuff isn't incremental revenue because they almost can't believe in it because it's too good to be true. You know, and it is too good to be true, but it is that good. You know, and accountants. Oh, d- don't get me started on accountants. I'm married to one. I hope she heard that. Um... My wife was a procurement, <laughs> and I occasionally, I occasionally launch into this massive assault on procurement, and then come off the podcast to discover her sort of really, really angry and saying it's an, <laughs> you know, it's an important strategic value-adding discipline. Well, it was in the defence industry where you worked, right? Okay, you know, it's a strategic discipline in a lot of areas. It's just basically a lot of people justifying their existence by cutting out anything that's actually interesting or good. But it's interesting, all these ideas that you talk about to like drive extra revenue, better experiences. Yeah. We haven't talked about the environmental case for public transit. And for I know for Chris, it's a big bugbear for you. Of You hate it when people sell transit on the environment. I'd be curious what your case is. I just think it invokes a knee-jerk reaction. I think with a certain segment of the population, when you go into environment, yeah. it... it you get a response and you get a complete shutdown and ears covered. And so I don't like to lead with that. I, I think there are other reasons. I, I, I'm not a I'm not an anti-car guy. There's also the kind of, no, I'm not an anti-car. I, you, I mean, if you live in Canada, there, there's that guy, not just bikes, who's a Canadian living in the Netherlands, isn't that? Do you remember? And he like- Who dumps on, who dumps on Canada regularly. <laughs> yeah, I like kind of going. Hold on, mate. Okay, I've been to the I've been to the Netherlands. I've been to Canada. Right? There's a lot to be said for Canadian Tire and Tim Hortons with a fucking parking <laughs> lot, mate, you know. And he's also pervily obsessed with fucking cycle lanes. And he kind of you know you know he becomes practically tumescent at the sight of a bike rack next to a station. And you go, yeah, okay, you sort of, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. He's right, but you can have both. Okay, it's not they're not mutually exclusive. Okay, and I, I, I accept his point that actually, you know, a large part of a, you know, what you might call the American suburban sprawl has become unwalkable and unsightly. I kind of buy that. I, that that's because of zoning laws, I think, which is which is that's absolutely true, hundred percent true. And and what he doesn't say enough is how much the improved transit in Amsterdam has improved driving. And that's what I'd like to reinforce. Transit makes so many things better, including your drive. We're not anti-car here. No, absolutely. And actually, road pricing, road pricing, if done really intelligently, could be highly beneficial. Um, uh, You know, just in nudging people to make journeys 
later because there is a problem that uh, you know there are people in making car journeys who are totally time insensitive you know retired people don't really care you know they're not in a hurry okay gen gen i'm being a bit, a bit of a generalization but actually just nudging those people to say we'll go at 11 o'clock and actually just giving them the information this is when the roads are quietest and that's a really important thing which is there's a website and um it's called uh, Seat Sixty One, I think it is. Have you have you ever seen this website? Yeah, the man in Seat Sixty One. Yeah, yeah, he's great. And now, until that existed, I had no way of knowing how to get to Switzerland, say by rail. I genuinely would have to sit there. It would take me an hour and a half of research to go. Can I can I change, please God, in Brussels or in Lille, not in Paris? Okay, you know, I don't want to change stations in Paris. It's a pain in the ass. Okay. Entire, if you've got luggage, okay, you know, can I make it easy? Change it. I don't care if there's a two-hour layover, you know, because there's a fantastic beer place called the Palais. I think it's called the Palais de la Bière, opposite, which has loads of Flemish and Belgian and Northern French beers. Fantastic. So you're pissed for the second train. Absolutely. <laughs> they also serve a dish called Un Welsh Complet, which is the Welsh, the French version of Welsh rabbit with extra egg and chips under the cheese. <laughs> The I mean, if you think if you think that Canadian thing poutine is unhealthy, and Welsh complay takes you to a whole completely new level. <laughs> okay, right. Um, but um, but yeah, I'm totally with you on that kind of car that that the bike fetishism. But also, if you make the the whole message environmental, it tends to become a bit hair shirted, you know, you know. And actually, no, we can make train travel more pleasant. I'm going up to Manchester next week, I think. Let's see, my daughter's there. I've got to give a talk to some Manx. Now, I'm going to take the train. I've got a car. I've got an electric car. I love driving it. But actually, you know, what the hell? It's it's pleasanter, actually, to have the time on the train facing your wife rather than sitting in the same direction, you know. And actually, you know, Uber has made the train better because you know you can get to a station and from a station in, in, in emergency. I mean, Uber's highly complementary to public transport. So when I used to go to a party in London, Okay, I quite often drive and not drink, and the reason was that I thought, well, you know, if it's like you know midnight or eleven o'clock on a Saturday night and I can't get a taxi, I'll miss the last train and I'm totally stuffed. So I take the car as a kind of fallback device. And now I basically know, okay, there may be a bit of surge pricing, or it may mean an Uber Lux, but I'll be able to get to that station. Okay, so I, I take the train because Uber does the last mile really, really well. Um, and, you know, so Uber is actually not a competitor to public transport. It's actually a complement to it. And we've got to look at the whole thing holistically from a passenger's point of view. It, you know, actually, the reason a lot of people didn't take the train was because the last mile was a pain in the ass. You know, you know think about going to restaurants. I mean, I live in Kent, which is a brilliant place to live because you can basically get into London Bridge, Waterloo East, Charing Cross, Cannon Street, or Victoria, or St. Pancras depending on which station you choose to use in Kent. And then you just you just basically, you know, get a train to the, the convenient part of London that suits you and then taxi it on for a mile and a half. You know, that's a brilliant combination. You know, it's 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 the best way of doing it. And so, no, the, you're right. And also the hair shirtedness of we all must, you know, that the environmental solution must be necessarily worse because we tend to assume that environmentally friendly products aren't as good. You know, it's rather like if you put low fat on something, it makes it taste worse because you tinker with people's expectations. 
And I think it's the wrong way to sell it as well, because it also makes traveling by train a duty rather than a pleasure. And we should aim just to make the better solution more pleasurable. Um, you know, electric cars, if you think about it, Elon's not the world's most popular man necessarily. But he did do that thing where you actually went, hold on a second. I was assuming that electrifying my car was a compromise. And now I see that effectively. I mean, I had the wonderful experience of having my electric car serviced. I've got the Ford Mustang Mach-E. Fantastic. Absolutely love it. But I took the car in for service. And about like 45 minutes later, they get back to me and they go, yeah, the tires are fine and the brakes are fine. Well, what about everything else? They go, well, there isn't anything else. <laughs> said, well, can you, can you change the cabin HEPA filter? Just I, I, I asked them to change the cabin air filter just to give them something to do, basically, because I felt guilty that I'd taken the car in for service and basically all they could do was go, yeah, brakes are fine, tires are fine. And then I suddenly realized, okay, this is a, you know, I mean, let's face it, Faraday shits on kind of, you know, Benz and diesel. I mean, the elegance of the electric motor as a form of motive power compared to the internal combustion engine in terms of simplicity is extraordinary. And it's the capacity for miniaturization as well really interests me. And electric bikes interest me because there are a whole bunch of people who can't really cycle for reasons of age, obesity, predilection, um, or actually the environment. You know, either the traffic's too dangerous. I, I wouldn't recommend it in people over 60 because if you break a bone over 60, you know, you don't want to fall off a bike and get your head. I'm 35, but electric bike's wonderful because it means I don't turn up at a meeting sweaty. I think that's the most one of the most overlooked things around like electrifying bicycles. <laughs> and actually, you turn up having had some nice fresh air, which is very good for you. Okay, there are lots and lots of positives there. And also, you know, uh, as I said, you know, if you're anywhere hilly, bikes uphill are useless. I mean, they're you know, they're, they're, I mean, genuinely, until you reach sort of you know Olympic levels of fitness, you're really better off pushing the bike uphill than you are cycling. And so, you know, the electric bike is a really, really exciting thing, I think. And by the way, I, you know, one of the things I do is, uh, one of the things we haven't looked at, we're always talking about bike lanes, okay? Well, between here and Seven Oaks, okay, uh, which is about two and a bit miles, three miles in one direction, and between here and Westrum, which is about one and a half miles, okay, there's a pavement, all pretty much all the way. Wouldn't cost much to make the pavement go all the way. Now, in a typical drive, until you get into the centre of Seven Oaks, there's basically nobody walking on that pavement, even at kind of rush hour time. Okay? There are bits of pavement with that. Now, it would seem a perfectly sensible bit of legislation to say you can use an electric scooter or an electric bike on a pavement, but you have to dismount when you're within 100 yards of a pedestrian. Because that would open up huge swathes of, of basically, effectively, you know, a SATS bike lane, for the use of electric scooters, electric bikes, I'd go into Westrum on my scooter. I mean, they look ridiculous, admittedly. But I know I'd actually think, okay, well, if I can just go in and have brunch, do a little bit of, sh I don't know, shopping, I need a cargo bike for that. But you know, just buy a few things, have a cup of coffee, potter about, okay? I'd, I'd do that, okay? If, if You know, not when it's pissing with rain, but I'd do it enough, okay? You know, and actually, we forget that, that, you know, the idea of scooters on the pavement fills people with horror. Well, it depends on the pavement, doesn't it? Because there's a hell of a lot of pavement in the UK where actually scooters would get better use out of it than pedestrians. And the other thing, the other thing that cyclists get a fucking bell. <laughs> Every bike had a f 
fucking bell. And they went ding, ding, ding. And he knew there was a bike. Okay. Now, they either creep up on you like some stealth bomber or they shout, <laughs> fuck off. Right. Well, neither of those things endears you to cyclists. Also, the, the you know, the, the, the arrogance of the anti-car movement forgets the fact that the people who don't have cars in London, some were saying this today, okay, their whole life is made possible by men in vans, okay? Right? I mean, you know, their Amazon deliveries come in a van. You know, their Ricardo delivery comes in a van. If you, if you want a plumber, you're not going to get a plumber turning up on the tube. They're going to come in a van, okay? Electricians need a van. Okay, the entire infrastructure of the country is effectively, you know, car dependent. Oh, the final thing, by the way, which will go down well with Canadians, I suspect, is my prediction that once one major motor manufacturer produces an electric RV, a certain percentage of the population will go nomadic. Because an electric RV, particularly if you could work out the toilet thing, you know, whether there's some sort of way of microwaving your own stool and to make it less effective and unpleasant. But if you think about it, okay, let's say you've got 200 kilowatt hours sitting underneath your RV, you know, maybe even more because it's huge, right? Now, you could take Elon the semi-truck and turn that into a home, right? Now, actually, to escape land prices, you know, actually, when you've got that, you've got, okay, you've got Elon's Starlink thing providing you with your broadband. You've got mobile telephony. Okay, you know, you've got email, you've got Zoom, you've got all these location independent services. Actually, you know, particularly in a country like Canada, living in an RV with us, you know, you can basically charge up for about, you know, five hours. Okay, And then you could basically live off the grid. Uh, you know, you could live off grid four or five days watching telly with your air fryer and the espresso machine. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't do that? I'm tempted. When you go skiing or snowboarding in the Rockies in the winter, you see these people with the most bonkers, expensive Mercedes Sprinter vans, but like turned into places that they live in. Yeah. Most of them are sort of tech entrepreneurs that are just taken off for like two months and live on a ski hill and tick over with the emails. But it's sort of funny how you, you probably went from your mother saying, if you don't like get your, get your shit together, you end up living in a van. Now living That's in a van is like of the ultimate lifestyle choice. That was one of the cleverest ideas, which was Walmart basically made friends with the RV community and said, you can park in our car parks, which obviously means that they shop at Walmart. But that was, that was an unbelievably, that has to be one of the cleverest ideas, I think. So everybody knows that if you go to a Walmart, I mean, possibly not in New Jersey, but if you're in Arizona or something, there are going to be a few other RVs there, so you're not completely alone at the mercy of a serial killer or something. You're basically safe. There's a Walmart there. If you need water or whatever, you can go in and get it. That was that was genuinely... That was the air to David Ogilvy's great... David Ogilvy always had one great idea which he failed to sell, which was that a forestry company wanted to do this kind of B2B advertising campaign, and David Ogilvy said, don't do an ad campaign. People will have forgotten it for a couple of years. Instead donate like 2% of your forestry to the American public for picnicking and public spaces. And people will kind of remember you in eternity, you know. And David Ogilvy said that was the one idea he failed to sell. Um, but I think Walmart actually effectively were channeling David Ogilvy with that brilliant approach to, to RV owners. You know, you could do something similar with Sainsbury's. I think that might have been leapfrogged actually by uh, Starbucks who built uh, a shipping container store, two containers, 
offset one on top of another that can be deployed in 48 hours for events, for for temporary things. Yeah, and and they plan to use them in the parking lots of Walmart where there was a lot of people in RVs who wanted a coffee. Because I keep asking KFC, what are the energy requirements of a branch of KFC? Because the, the, the van food is interesting because we have two vans here. And annoyingly, they both arrive on Monday. There's Peruni, which does these Greek um, kind of kebab, I mean, posh kebabs, basically, uh, which are fantastic. And there's also a wood-fired pizza van that all annoyingly turns up on Monday. But what was interesting when my kids were at home is they ate there more frequently than they would have done had it been a restaurant at the end of the drive. Because, you know, oh, it's Monday. You know, they come home from school. It's Monday. It's our one chance to have the wood-fired pizza because it was only there on Mondays. And so we ended up doing that with absolutely monotonous regularity, which we wouldn't have done had the thing always been there. So I've always wondered, you know, the KFC on wheels has to be tried. That's a brilliant inherent scarceness. That scarceness increases the value of it, right? I keep telling, I'm going to give this away because it annoys me, they, they, nobody listens, but I keep telling Coke, look, a Coke vending machine plus seven kilowatts is a car charger, right? You've got the contactless payment thing. You've got a bloke who turns up to replenish the machine who could also check the car charger still working and conduct, obviously, not high-voltage repairs, but, you know, can basically report back on the state of the charger, Okay. And effectively, you know, you've got connectivity and you've got a supply of electricity. Now, if you go to 7 eight Council and say, can we put Coke vending machines on the street, please? They're going to tell you to piss off. But if you say, how would you like a load of free car chargers? No, by the way, they also sell Coke. They're probably going to listen to you. I've said this to Nestle around water dispensers because like, Nestle make a shitload of money from water. Absolutely. But you should have like, when you have a water fountain, there should be a hot water one as well as a cold water one and a thing to dispense a Nescafe instant coffee, coffee sashi with a bit of coffee, mate. It won't be the best coffee, but it's a caffeine. They had a product which actually was brilliant, okay, which they basically took over from Japan, where you have these canned hot drinks, which are self-heating cans. And it was called Nescafe Hot When You Want. And you paid about two quid, and you got a can of coffee. And people got a bit grumpy because part of the coffee can was a heating element, so they got a bit less coffee. But it was enough coffee, and it was nice, actually. It was quite good, okay? And basically, you turned it upside down, you pressed this button, and the heating element heated it up to about 95 degrees. And it was great for train journeys if you didn't have any catering on the train, because you don't always want to take your coffee on board with you know, on a longer journey. Brilliant for camping, brilliant for, you know, if you're out of doors and you just wanted a warm drink because it was cold. And it was, you know, brilliant for long car journeys. You know, halfway through the car journey, you just crack a tube, basically. And unfortunately, they had to withdraw it. And I think the reason was that people left People left the cans kind of in the window of their car, where they heated up already for about sort of 50 degrees centigrade. And then when you press the heating element, it practically became a plasma and flat. And it was like dangerously hot. Now, the Japanese aren't idiots, so you can trust them not to do that kind of thing. Europeans, not so much. But I would, whenever I get back to Nesta, I always say, can you bring that back, please? You know, because it was really, really useful. You know, it was really nice. For, you can imagine it for camping or cycling. The ability to stop where there's a really nice view and have a hot cup of coffee. That was great. So, uh, what was the thing that would, would you, you spend a lot of time on trains, both commuting into London or traveling around go or like flying around the world? Yeah. What are the things you sort of look around at and go, I just wish that exist for, existed for me as a passenger to make my life better? 
There's a brilliant woman called Courtney Moore, who I've spoken to a couple of times. She's the head of behavioral science for Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, which is a very, very good airport. And one of the things she's looking at is that business of how do you get people to stop forming a queue before you board the plane, okay? So you have that annoying period where everybody now is terrified of not having enough space for their overhead luggage. So everybody, particularly if they're in group one, two, three, four, five, or want to pretend to be, they go and start queuing about 20 minutes before the plane boards, when you could be sitting down drinking a coffee and getting on the Canadians queue to board the train. So what are her queue to board the train. They check our tickets beforehand, and then they check our tickets on the train. You're triggering me now. Yeah, no, that's an annoying. That's an annoying feature that you know the repeated checking of tickets. And some, as you said, that solution where I want to make sure people have paid, but I want to find the solution that doesn't involve expensive, obstructive infrastructure. You know, and actually, you should let people jump on a train and buy their ticket on a train. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's no reason why you couldn't have a small ticket machine on a train. You're not going to run away. No, uh, exactly that. And so, you know, those sort of things. But Courtney Moore's idea was one solution was to make it really ambiguous where the boarding point was. <laughs> so nobody could actually queue because they didn't know whether they were boarding through gate A or gate B. So that effectively they'd just stay there and have a cup of coffee instead. But that's the kind of problem, which is, what else is there? I mean, uh, you know, there, there are really interesting psychological things like self-labeling your luggage and so forth, which Swiss Air does. That's quite an interesting idea because then I think you'd have confidence in luggage drop-off if you kind of labelled your luggage before you flew. I think Swiss Air does this thing where you basically laser print something out and you um, that you then put it in a kind of transparent thing. Um, that you know they're really interesting. Why why you have to queue to check in when you could do the cheese counter method of queuing where you just go okay numbers five to fifteen numbers you know uh, sixteen to twenty five and so on or drop your bags off the night before. That they do. Actually, Heathrow, Heathrow does that. Now, I'm cl- weirdly, my brother-in-law uh, laughed his head off at me for doing this. But we actually went to Gatwick the night before to check in our luggage when we flew to Italy and then went home again. Okay. But what that means is that without luggage, you can, one, you don't, you, you have no fear. You just go straight to security. Okay. That's problem number one solved. Secondly, you can use public transport to get to the plane because, again, you don't have any luggage, okay? There's also a service in the UK which now has started operating, I think again from uh, Gatwick, called Airporter, where they collect your luggage the day beforehand. Uh, it's, 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 it's expensive, but actually it's probably commensurate with taking a taxi, and it means you can again take public transport to the plane perfectly happily because you're just travelling with a laptop and nothing else, and they've taken all your bags and checked them in for you. That's great. Um, so... I mean, the other idea I had is that, you know, could you super, for short-haul flights, of which you don't have that, I suppose you do have them in Canada, right? We've got a lot of them. Toronto to Winnipeg, Toronto, et cetera. Um, there, I've always wondered, could you just, uh, basically, the plane, there's a limit to what you can do on a plane to make a short-haul flight amazing, but could you actually premiumize the airport experience? Actually, Dublin Airport, I mean, Heathrow does it, but it's monstrously expensive. There's a sort of private VIP terminal where they drive you to the plane. At Dublin, it's just about affordable, actually. It's a few hundred quid. And it's less if you're a party of four. And you go to this sort of private place, they take your luggage, and then you basically sit there in a lounge, uh, totally privately, and then they drive you to the plane. I mean, that sort of stuff is quite interesting, which is that, of course, 
it, the, one of the interesting things is that infrequent airport users and, and frequent airport users have a completely different need from an airport. You know, in some ways, the, the infrequent users enjoy it because it's a distraction and it's really interesting and novel. And the frequent users basically just want a London City airport experience where you get through really quickly. Um, that, you know, that's, I mean, London City, there is that interesting thing, which is, this is actually a fundamental problem, of course, which is that people notice things that are different. And as a consequence, they, they attach importance to what they notice rather than noticing what's important. And so you had this period in my childhood where everybody went, oh, it's like Dubai Airport, Schiphol Airport, it's amazing. You know, I bought a Walkman for like, you know, 120 <laughs> quid. Then they went, then it went up just Changi, you know, Singapore Airport's brilliant. Yeah, it's, you know, then, then it was Dubai Airport. Oh, it's amazing. You can buy this. And I, you know, I bought two tons of cardamom pieces, <laughs> whatever. Okay. Oh, it's amazing. And then everybody, every airport became like a fucking shopping center. And so suddenly people started going, oh, London City Airport is brilliant. You get through in five minutes, okay? And so you get this kind of weird pendulum effect in what people want, because what they want is the opposite of what they're used to, in a funny kind of way. This is how I feel about stations and pubs. The best station is the station with a pub in it. Not because it's a novelty, but because it's like, I have somewhere to sit, I can have a beer from the area where the station is, and if I miss my train, I'll have another one. No, that's absolutely true. And actually... Um, you know, there are really cute things you can do. Like, you know, uh, there's that wonderful company called UK Departure Boards, okay, where you can get an internet-connected replica departure board. That, I mean, you can get one that's like sort of four feet across, which is intended for like pubs and restaurants that are near a station. And it just shows you the live departures. Uh, the latest one I've got actually reads out the station announcements, which drives my wife <laughs> But that's an unbelievably cute thing. So I have that in bed. I have that in my bedroom, not the one that reads it out. Okay. And basically, when you get up in the morning, you just glance to the departure board and you basically go, oh, the trains are running fine. I'll go to that station. I need that as a backdrop for all the future podcasts we do. Well, actually, if you go to UK departure, it would be a bit weird sitting in Canada <laughs> with the live departures. From uh, I, I could be anywhere. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's called UK, is it UK departure boards or live departureboards.com. And he's a brilliant guy in Bristol who's making these things by hand. And I think he eventually needs it. It's based on Raspberry Pi. And it's one of the one of the things I own that I most love. I really, really love it. So in Deal, where I'm basically eight minutes walk from the station. Have you found it? Yeah. If, if Chris had one of these, he'd have it for Ottawa for the O train. It would just say out of service. <laughs> it, would, it, would have, it would have the little infinity sign. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, yeah, actually, you could you could get one for the backdrop for the podcast. It'd be really lovely because it's one of my proudest possessions. I mean, it's a bit tragic, but it's one of those things I just can't resist. And I, uh, you know, and it is absolutely delightful. You can program it to do all sorts of things. You know, like I, I tend to program it to be a bit early because here at home I'm sort of twenty minutes drive from the station, or you've got to now twenty minutes. Uh, so I kind of you know program it to be to to sort of tell you the trains that are further out. So it gives you advance warning of any problems from the station I most commonly use. But um, it's absolutely live and you can get... He'll post it. He'll post it to Canada. I can see no reason why it wouldn't work uh, in any country in the world because it's basically an internet connection and a USB USB micro connection to provide it with power. So you'll you'll absolutely... I mean, you could get one of the massive ones, but that's probably going a bit far. But um, they are unbelievably cute and adorable. 
Chris can't have things posted though because whenever he gets models made, they get broken in in, in transit. That is my British experience of the Canadian Postal Service has been fantastic. Everything I bought on eBay from Canada sort of arrives in two days. Yeah, yeah, that's the post is good, but this was the airline. Post colonial. This was the airlines. So if you don't oh, know about Canadian Airlines, got it. <laughs> why don't Canadians? Why don't Canadians like Air Canada? Because I've always noticed that a lot of Canadians mourn the demise of Canadian Airlines. You're a worldwide traveler. You are a man of status. So, and you're flying internationally to and from Canada, and you get automatically a higher level of service. You don't get the domestic, you know, uh, Winnipeg to Medicine Hat flights uh, or, or, or Moose Jaw. And, and that's where Air Canada punishes people. What's Porter Air? What's Porter? Porter Air always tempts me because it goes to that little island off Toronto. Porter Air, well, actually, they've expanded. They also fly out of Pearson now and they have jets. But uh, but uh, Porter is... Are they doing okay? Are they, you've got WestJet. WestJet does some pretty good transatlantic... Not anymore. They've, they've shut down all their transatlantic flights except out of Calgary. They were they were my my go-to last year because you always get good flights, especially if I went from London, where I am now, through Dublin. And I'd always get the cheapest flight possible. And they were great. But uh, Canadian Airlines have suffered... And their business has suffered, so they've retrenched, and WestJet has cut all their international flights. It's partly a regulatory thing as well. So, like, you can't have foreign-owned airlines in Canada. So you you end up with like because it's not a huge population, but it's a massive geography. You end up with the duopoly. Got it. Got it. So it's where it's a what is it? It's a where it's a WestJet Air Canada duopoly, is it? Yeah, and then WestJet's the, the clues in the name, but like they they've very much gone. We now focus on the West, and Air Canada's retrenched a little bit and so Air Canada tries a little bit less hard in the West and WestJet have more control and then in the East it means Air Canada has more control but Port is fantastic but only if you're going a short distance they don't market themselves by the huge sways in pricing they're fairly stable and consistent with their pricing so uh and and they're very civilized to fly with they're very you know there's always there's always beer available on every flight and there's always pleasantry and, you know, speaking to you uh, with eye contact, uh, which you don't always get on the other airlines. So it's it's very civilized. The marker of civility, I like where you went there with Chris, was beer before eye contact. Yes, yes. I've got my priority. <laughs> speaking of, can I just throw out some throw out some quick hitters from the things I've observed and all the yeah, cool. all the things I've, I've seen and listened? Yeah, in one speech you, you mentioned uh, poker. You mentioned you had read a, a, a book by Annie Duke. And to me, poker is the perfect analogy to life. You could be you could be the best player in the world and get knocked out in 10 minutes. Or you could be the worst player in the world and go right to the end. Just like, you know, Jim Fix, the long distance runner, wrote all kinds of books on it, died at 39 because of his heredity. And meanwhile, other players have gone on and won bajillions of dollars, and they were not good players. Over time, I think. Over, over time, time, yes, yes. The, but I've certainly been to poker evenings where the complete novice wins the whole thing. And actually, it is, it is a very good analogy to life because, in a sense, it's a blend of luck and skill. There is skill to it. But there's a, there's a good analogy to the irrationality in, in transit behaviors, too. Yeah. 
Absolutely. They've not made a computer program that can play an eight-handed game and win it against seven other humans. A computer uh, program does not exist because it's so hard to predict the irrationality of humans. And, and that's the lesson that has to keep going into the transit agencies. People don't behave like, uh, you know, uh, uh, homo transporticus. So I thought that, I thought that reference to poker was very good. No, no, that, that homo transporticus is exactly the, uh, you know, that, that, that mythical, there are two problems there. There's the model trumps the human, but also there's the fundamental problem of economics is the single representative age. Because people are very different. They have different priorities, different tastes, different concerns, different defaults. You know, I mean, you know, um, I will probably default. I tend to default trains to unless I'm staying for two nights or more. You know, for example, other people will drive even if they're just going for the day. There's, and there's other even less rational factors as to why somebody might. I want to I want to get a, a Jamaican patty at this stop so i'm gonna take the train because i want to pick up dinner on the way that that's something by the way i've been talking about quite a lot recently which is what i call economy but brilliant in one respect in other words not shit you you get all the basics right and examples of this are i think the magic castle hotel in los angeles which has the popsicle hotline next to the swing where you pick up the phone okay the moxie hotel chain i don't know if you've got moxies in canada you certainly have in the u.s and europe Okay, uh, and what it does is basically the room's pretty basic. The Wi-Fi is pretty good. The TV is very good. Um, but then they have that 24-hour bar and coffee shop downstairs where you can basically chill out, work. It's all about the lounge. Very, very clever. Now, what tends to happen, I think, is the finance people go, do we really need this lounge? We could get it another six runs. You know what I mean? And it's what, there is a brilliant kind of mind trick. There are a few mind tricks you can play. One of them is the trade-off mind trick, which I think is more important. I, I wrote about this in Alchemy. And it all came from the fact that when I was at university, at the end of your first year, in your first year, you tended to hit a not very good room in college, but they were allocated by a lot, and they were all much of a muchness. The end of the first year, you went into this thing called the ballot. And uh, if you weren't a scholar, they had a separate allocation of rooms. You're either at the top of the ballot, in the middle, or at the bottom, roughly speaking. And then for your third year, it, your position was reversed. Everybody basically told themselves a story, which is they were happy with the trade-off they had. People in the middle went, well, that's great because I won't have a terrible room both years. People at the top in the second year went, well, it's more important to have a good room in the second year because you're out of college, you don't want to be miles away. People who are at the bottom in the second year went, well, I'll have a brilliant year in my third year, which is what really matters. And everybody basically did this sort of sweet lemons thing where they told themselves a story, the opposite of sour grapes where they told themselves a story which basically accentuated the positive. And I think you can design choices like that, which is kind of like, you know, it's almost like, you know, if you design things like you can either have one of the seats for two in the 242 configuration, or you can have something else. In other words, you can have more leg room, or you can have a seat in a pair, okay? Aisle or window seat, or you get a bit more leg room. And I think if you design those trade-offs, you can actually end up with a world where everybody's happy. They're just happy in a different way because their attention is drawn to a different aspect of the experience. I often thought, you know, you know, you, I mean, obviously you can do it with price. You know, you pay a bit more, you get a table. But you can also do things like, you know, if you, I don't know, if you agree to stand on a short train journey in a standing carriage, 
you get like there's I don't know there's a coffee bar or something. You see what I mean? You can I think you can play these things quite interestingly. And I think there's this sort of field of economy which is economy but brilliant in one respect, which I think is a really really interesting concept. The Moxie Hotel chain I've recommended it to a few other people who are also they basically go look you know actually for ninety percent of my hotel stays this does the job just right. You know, it's always within your corporate allowance, okay? You know, you're not having to argue with someone in finance, um, you know, about uh, why it was necessary for you to stay at the Beverly Wilshire for two months. Um, and actually, for any, any, stay under th any, any stay under three nights, it does the job just fine, you know. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're building a connected future today. Shared network infrastructures, cutting edge connectivity solutions. We enable connected transit, venues, enterprise, next generation networks, and smart cities to create new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. Unlock the power of an interconnected future with Bolden Networks. To find out more, visit bolden.com. I was, I was going to Toronto for a conference recently, and the, the hotel prices in Toronto are just insane. Uh, the courtyard was $900 a night. Oh, it's gone completely, it's gone deranged. And I think this is actually a problem because I think the algorithm is optimizing on short-term gains at the cost that a load of people are going to be finding alternative. Okay. The long-term interests of the, of the hotel industry, so someone's going to invent a better alternative or else someone's just going to go sod it, I'm going to Airbnb. Because I, I had an operation in London and it was quite early in the morning. And I wanted to stay at a nothing particularly special hotel, yeah, nice enough, which was opposite the hospital. And I kind of go, okay, and we two to three hundred quid, but I can take this, you know, it saves me. Da, 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 I won't be late. And it was like five hundred and eighty pounds. And actually, I checked, and the Dorchester was only seven hundred and fifty. Okay, that was my problem when I was looking to go to Toronto for two nights. The cheapest hotel in Toronto was the Ritz Carlton, and and I and I. I said, there's no way I can get this through finance. How, how, how am I going to possibly convince anybody that this is the cheapest hotel in Toronto? I had this wonderful row with, when first class was cheaper than business class on a plane. <laughs> I said, yeah, but you're not allowed to fly first class. I said, the reason you're not allowed to fly first class is because it's fucking expensive. Okay? <laughs> and the reason is, of course, all these companies have this you can't fly first class policy, which means that quite often first class will be cheaper than business. I mean, it's, it's not common, but it happens quite frequently, you know, reasonably frequently. It's not a problem I encounter a lot. My second quick note. Um, so uh, I, I heard you say that you wouldn't mind living on a train line. It, it doesn't bother you to live on a train line. And it just... No, not at all, no. Slightly difficult in North, different in North America where the train might go on for about 12 minutes <laughs> and also do that, you know... And uh, you have that, first of all, you have the, the, you know, the noise of the horn combined with the level crossing, you know, the ding, 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 ding. That might get to me if there were a load of trains going through. But I lived next to a train line in London, and the point was that the train stopped at midnight. We got far more disturbance from the road than we ever got from the train line, actually. Um, and it's one of those things where you can game the property market, find something other people don't like, like being next to a pub, which either you don't care about or which you think is a bonus. You know, and you're on to a winner. But that's another interesting thing, which is, you know, the, um, you know, as well as Wi-Fi and connectivity, catering, uh, you know, on a train can be a really pleasant thing. You know, 
I mean, I always remember, you know, being stuck on a train that was stationary in a field for about 30 minutes, but it was a virgin train. It was a crazy thing once where I was on, a, I booked a virgin train ticket literally from um, Watford to Coventry because there was a train that went from East Croydon, uh, went from East Croydon to Watford and it bypassed London. And the ticket was £15 or something, okay? And they came up and they said, what would you like for breakfast? And I said, how much is it? They said, it's free. And I had a very good full English breakfast for free on a £15 train ticket. I almost felt guilty. You know, I felt I had to go, you know, tip them or something because actually the breakfast was worth practically the entire cost of the ticket. But um, those kind of things, I mean, fundamentally, I think that I think the market does divide into people who want, um, uh, you know, big people who are quality focused, people who are price focused. And But I think one of the things we can create for transport particularly, for example, for older people, people who have disabilities, is is a kind of middle ground between the two extremes. If you could do a kind of moxie hotels of transport. I suppose you could argue JetBlue has done that. You could argue Southwest Airlines has done that. But there is there is a particular kind of what you might call rational sheep. Porter Airlines probably does that, actually. Although, as you said, it's not very variable. I also think LNER has done this. Go on. I'll, I'll be nice about LNER because I use them a lot and we spoke to one of the guys from LNER before we spoke to you and he's a lovely man. I like them. I, I yeah. When, when they, when what is now LNER was originally like a virgin, it was like a, vir, a very short-lived virgin franchise. So when they got the Azuma trains, that the name Azuma is a virgin invention because they believed in branding the new rolling stock. This is, this is, is this, is this to, is this to York? Is it you go particularly? King's Cross. Yeah, my dad li- my dad lives in York. I have like half the teams in Edinburgh, so I'm up and down there like reasonably frequently when I'm over. But like the 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 standard class on an LNER Azuma, the seat's comfortable enough, it's wide enough, it's spacious enough. They've thought about that the app actually works really, really well. The food is quite good on the train compared to some of the other train companies. The first class is often like some there's the, like if you're on an off peak one. First class will be 50 quid and standard is 47. So you book the first class and you get the perks. I've never understood that in Europe, by the way, which is you have quite often in France, you have a five-hour train journey. Or the one I usually do is Marseille to Lille. When I come back from Canary, uh, I take the train from Cannes to Marseille and then there's this through train at 12.18, I think it is, Marseille to Lille. And you're on that command train for five hours. And the first class price is like 10 euros more than the second class. And you do let you do then realise that this theory that there are some people who are entirely price focused about transport, because there are certain people that one thing you've got to watch about this is there are a lot of people who are not that price sensitive when they're buying a good, but anything intangible like a service, whether you know, there's a whole swathe of the population who really hate taking taxis, like it really pains them. Because they think that money is to acquire goods. Rory, we're called Northerners. I'll tell you a lovely story about that, which is there's another spectator journalist who lives in Yorkshire, okay, who is a Yorkshireman. And my daughter's boyfriend's parents are from Yorkshire and they met him and they said, You must know Rory Sutherland, okay? And um, he said, Oh, yeah, yeah. He said, Yeah, I do. I, I actually I was on a jury with him. That reminds me, he still owes me for half of a taxi fare because I dropped off at the station. <laughs> now, that's not so surprising, okay, except it happened eight years ago, okay? So he has this memory of being owed, like, six quid 
towards his taxi fare from a taxi journey the guy took practically a decade ago. This was like five years before COVID, okay? And his memory of me is not, yeah, no, I met him, you know, I'm, uh, oh, still owes me for that taxi. Jesus, that's Yorkshire. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I mean, you have that weird thing. I'm You're, from Lancashire, no, 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 so it's okay. The, the, I know, the Lancastrians are a complete mirror image, aren't they? They tend to be quite blingy. We sh it shows in our cars. I think you've talked about this. Like people from the north always have a flashier car, but like people from Lancashire will have a flashy car. People from Yorkshire have a Subaru. Have a Subaru. It's it's all it's all utility. Yeah, my dad was a bit like that. You kind of react against it, you know. Yeah, but no, I mean actually, you're right. The first class premium, if you if you if you're a bit savvy with the time and you're you're a bit flexible, you can get a really good LNER first class ticket. You get a great service. Um, it's um, uh, it, it, no, I, I mean, I, I've, my daughter's a big fan of this new um, competing train, which just goes London, Newcastle, Edinburgh, which is the... Is that Lumo? Lumo, the Lumo, yeah. And it's one class only. But she she's actually um, she's actually quite a big fan of it because she says it's actually very reliable and, of course, it's very fast. Um, you know, I mean, it is, it is appreciably pretty fast because it doesn't stop at all. And um, she's always been very happy with the prices on this Lumo thing, which seems to be competing quite effectively. Well, this is branding in trains because the train, the Lumo train, the vehicle is the same thing as the Azuma train. It's just one's coloured blue and one's coloured red and grey. So it's like, how much difference can you can can you make? But they've clearly differentiated it relatively well. I've got a vague well. memory it might be a bit stingy on the luggage provision because they squeeze in a few extra seats. I've got a vague memory that if, you've got, if you're travelling with a stack of suitcases... Maybe you don't want to do it. But the Newcastle students, like... Yeah, yeah. It's a matter of time until they start charging for baggage. Like yeah, yeah. I, that, that, that's a Canadian plan, is it? To charge or for... Via, or via rail. So via rail's planning to ch charge for checked baggage. They charge, weigh your bags. They, they already weigh the bags, yeah. But they're planning to charge for checked baggage, uh, any pets. Um, they, they've... they've we, we saw a presentation last October about their new ticketing system coming in March. And, and three quarters of the audience had to be looking at it saying, we had this 10 years ago. It's just uh, an, an abysmal service that is just so painful. And, and they're, they're in these European uh, presentations. By God, get on some of the trains here, please. <laughs> because it's just so night and day. I, I don't understand why we all line up. There's this hysterical and rather tragic thing, which is that, when we launched the Nightstar, there was supposed to be this service, sorry, the Eurostar, there was supposed to be this service called Nightstar, which was a sleeper service to places like, I guess, Frankfurt or Milan. I don't know where they planned to go, but they were going to run about three or four sleeper trains from London to European capitals. Now, you get into a bit of trouble on the return leg because you have to have in, 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 you have to clear international customs uh, at the departure station, or else everybody has to get off the train and kneel and go through a security thing, which is a pain in the ass. Okay, but any, anyway, they, they decided it wasn't viable and they sold the trains to Canada where Via Rail operates the sleepers, I think, from New Brunswick to Quebec. Does that make sense? Is there a once-a-week sleeper service? They have, they have some trains there, yeah. Okay. And of yeah. course... I think it's like maybe three times a week, That's yeah. right. And the trains were not designed for Canada because probably all the lavatories froze. Yeah. <laughs> and so no, you, you had a sleeper service with completely inactivated lavatories. But it would be really interesting for someone like an, you know, an Elon Musk kind of rich eccentric to abandon their plans for rocket, you know, manned space missions and actually to take over something like Amtrak or Varel. Because I think, you know, if you just if you just sunk a ton of money into this, 
thing. And you've got a sort of Johnny Ive character to do the, do the design. You could, I think, create something that was actually really, really quite effective. What we need is Joe Biden and Johnny Ive together reinventing Amtrak. Joe writes the checks. Johnny yes, does exactly, the design. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you could you could effectively do something remarkable. So who owns who owns the rails? So who owns the rails? Via rails run by bureaucrats. Who runs the actual rail? You couldn't have a competing system to Via Rail operating in Canada, could you? You couldn't just start a privatized. Or could you? So the rails on Via Rail are the the, the, the Canadian National and Canadian Pacific Railroads, like that they're owned by the freight companies. Got it. And then there's a long drawn out debate just now of they want to call it high frequency. This is actually quite interesting to you, but um, they call it high frequency yes, rail. Right. Yeah, they're right. To call so it like yep. Canadians don't have the ambition to do high speed. So like they, they've said we want to go at 160, not 250. Well, the, the, the new trains will go as as high as 200 kilometers now. That that which is slow, but maybe but that's okay if they're nice. But they're going to no, no, the, 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 the problem is that they they don't own they don't own the rails. The freight companies own more than half the rails. Of course. So anytime course. there's a, a slowdown in freight, the freight companies get priority. So via yeah. if via misses a window, now the problem compounds because you've missed the next window and the next window. You're now behind some enormous great freight thing taking you know shale yeah. from <laughs> goodness knows where. And you're, you're rumbling. I can just imagine that. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the craziest one I had was I was in um, Austin, Texas, and I thought, I've got a day to spare. Let's go to San Antonio because I've never been. I can't have to go and see the Alamo. And there's one train a day in each direction. And I think I've got a vague idea. What you've got to remember is Austin is something like the 11th largest city in the US. And, and so San Antonio is the seventh largest city. So there's significant city pairs. About, if I remember rightly, 180 miles apart, or 200 miles apart. But the journey, for some reason, like one of the journeys was practically overnight. They take something like six hours. And I mean, you, you know, you, with a reasonable train, that's a distance you can cover in an hour and a half. You know, that should have been, you know, I mean, San Antonio from Austin should be a day trip by train. I can't imagine for the life of me, you know, why they don't do that. But for whatever reason, they don't. Even to go from Kitchener, Waterloo in Ontario, which is as the crow flies, maybe 60, 70 miles, to drive it with no traffic is just about an hour. Yeah. To drive it on a normal day is about two hours. The train is three and a bit. Yeah, I did a very good one. To ha I went to Hamilton. Actually, we didn't go to Hamilton. We went to a station. That's quite good. And we went to the station outside Hamilton, which is like a parkway station. I can't remember what it's called. Like Aldershot well, that was quite. That was quite a good... It's called Aldershot. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And it is actually really rather good. I, I, that was quite a pleasant journey. And the trains themselves are very big, spacious, and comfy. You know, there is that great advantage in North America where everything's just a bit bigger. So you know, if you've got to leave your luggage, there's a, you know everything's just a bit more spacious. And I found that very pleasant. We went to see some friends in in, in um, Halifax, in Hamilton, and um, that that was a good trip. That was certainly good. Yeah, it's about four hours to drive from Ottawa to Toronto, and I've made that trip a million times. Yeah. Uh, five hours by train. Uh, by train? Yeah. If, if they made it, if they made it seven hours and overnight, I would take that train. Well, that's the weirdest thing, which is, of course, sleeper trains are brilliant because I had a friend who lived in Menorca, and he said the brilliant thing about living in Menorca is he said you can get to, uh, you know, he said you can get to the south of France uh, in three hours. I said, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, well, it's actually eleven hours, but you're asleep for eight because you're on the ferry, <laughs> <laughs> and so that. That lateral thinking is really quite important. And the other one that's interesting is 
there is a real value to high-speed rail. Don't get me wrong, okay? If you do the Paris-Lyon, which used to be four hours, and the TGV reduced it to two, that's a game-changer, because that's now a day trip. Um, if you if you can get four hours down to two, it's a game-changer. Getting two hours down to one is not a game-changer. So I've just had a friend text me a really interesting question that I think we should end on. I think I think we've got a culture where people want to win arguments and they're looking for a single right answer because that's what a bureaucrat wants is a defensible decision. Not a good decision, but a defensible one. So you construct these artificial models so that the model gives you an, an ambiguous answer, which you can't be fired for pursuing because it has the semblance yeah. of rationality. And actually, there are better answers out there, but they require leaps of the imagination, which bureaucrats aren't prepared to take. That's roughly my my summary. You you phrased it as uh, as do you want to win arguments or solve problems? I've been saying, I've been saying for years. Do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? And the difference in the bureau between the bureaucrat and the entrepreneur is that the entrepreneur is happy to succeed in any way possible and doesn't have to justify his reasoning to people. He simply points to his success. So there's genuine skin in the game. Whereas the bureaucrat doesn't have skin in the game, provided they can provide a spurious rationale for their decision. So you had the absurdity with High Speed 2, where somebody decided it had to go at 250 miles an hour. I mean, no one quite knows who this was, which effectively means that the train can't stop. It has to go in a straight line because it's going so goddamn fast, which means you have to tunnel through the Chilterns for most of the damn journey. Okay. And the nobody really thought the speed was of any importance it was only a showcase thing really there was no evidence but there was a much more intelligent route which went effectively along the route of the m40 it's really clever routing a new railway along a motorway because if you're living next door to a motorway you're not that bothered by the addition of a train right whereas if you're living in the depths of the countryside and you suddenly have this thing wellying past you at 250 miles an hour um, that's a major annoyance this is the bright line thing but their model said that the model, literally, it was Arup who came up with this brilliant plan for High Speed 2, which would have been tremendous. It was really, really clever. And it actually connected with St. Pancras as well. There were all these kind of clever things. It actually went through Heathrow as well. So it actually served the airport as well as the city. I mean, the whole plan was brilliant. And then they had this model which basically said every additional minute of travel uh, reduces the value of the train by a, million, by a billion pounds in terms of disutility of time spent on train. Now, no one cares. With 10 minutes, no one cares, okay? Genuinely, no one's going to say, I would go to Manchester today, but it takes eight minutes too long. It's the most bollocks thing, but the model effectively dictated the decision because if you're a bureaucrat, effectively, if you have conformed to the model, you are automatically safe from any future blame. Whereas if you've deviated from the model, you're now exposed. And any subjective decision, therefore, however intelligent, is a career risk for the bureaucratic mindset. Do you find in your work that you now, over the years, see that this realm of going from the model to the emotion or the psychology or the the irrational driving the decision, do you think that world is changing? Uh, I think we have managed to create, uh, me and a lot of other people, including people like you, actually, have managed to create at least a dissenting voice. I think the dissenting voice is still heard too late. 
So the problem has already been defined by, you know, economists, you know, or or kind of, you know, reductionists, effectively, before the dissenting voice gets a chance to be heard. But at least it's now there. Because previously, I think people did generally go, no, 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 the purpose of a train is to be fast and punctual. You know, because that's what they've been taught to believe. And market research reveals a lot of people just parrot, you know, oh, the trains, they're terrible, they're always late. And as you go, well, yeah, okay, but I mean, what sort of late matters to you? You know, you've got to get out, actually, you've got to get out into the weeds here and go, you know, does five minutes late bother you? No, not really, you know, okay. You know, does it really matter? I mean, interestingly, the rail companies in Britain got into a lot of trouble for timetable padding, which is just achieving better punctuality figures by slightly overestimating the likely journeys. Okay. But I think time t- I think timetable padding's okay. Because if the train promises I arrive at 4.39 and I arrive at 4.39, the fact that the journey took three minutes longer isn't really material, okay? I haven't disappointed anybody by effectively, you know, uh, arriving late. Um, And actually, I think timetable padding isn't cheating. I think it's a healthy thing to do psychologically. You know, actually allow an extra half hour. If the train arrives early, no one's going to complain, okay? And I thought, you know, a lot of people go, yeah, 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 it's cheating because you just made the train... You've just made a less ambitious target for speed in order to be more punctual. But since people who are taking commuter journeys into London, the reason they don't go by car is basically because they need to have a reasonable expectation of where they're going to arrive. Okay. Right. And actually, the car might be faster in some circumstances, but when it's worse, it's two hours worse. You know, it's a catastrophe. It's really bad. The variance is too high. Okay. I had. I had a conductor apologize to us one time because uh, we arrived on time. He apologized and said, I hope this doesn't throw anybody off. <laughs> and sure. People emerging days onto the platform, not knowing what had hit them. I get this. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I, I want to hear what you had to say, but I was I just had one final question. And it's it could be, you know, uh, 10 days. It could be 10 years. How can I buy you a beer? How can we sit down one day and just do this because i can listen to you forever uh, well i'll come to ottawa one day i i'm uh, i'm followed uh, by tim hortons on twitter which is practically a pathway to canadian citizenship i understand <laughs> um i'm a huge canadian file i'll come here i'll go to canada at least probably once a year so i'd love i, I mean ha, uh, i might take that train trip up to ottawa who knows ottawa toronto montreal i'll meet you there i'll, I'll give you my credit Fantastic. You won't be on time, yeah. but you'll you'll enjoy it. I'll enjoy I will it. wait patiently at <laughs> poor people's backyards. Now, the other thing, by the way, the other form of transport which is completely neglected, which I think has potential. There was an eccentric in Britain called Sir Alfred Sherman, and there's also a small movement in Britain which says that certain railways should be concreted over and used for coaches, motor coaches. I mean, and I think that deserves, in some cases, that deserves consideration. I think there might be consideration in Canada for take a train out of the centre of Toronto and then board a coach for certain journeys. Because the innovation... Now, if you if you go on YouTube, you'll see various Japanese overnight luxury sleeper coaches where you pay quite a lot of money, but you literally get a cabin and a coach. And there's one coach that has this extraordinarily sprung hydraulic seat, which might even sort of borrow from sort of Formula One racing where you have kind of you know, adaptive springing or or whatever. But uh, there is that thing, which is if you did take a couple of railway lines and give them over to coach travel, 
One, of course, if a coach breaks down, the other coaches can just drive around it. You'd only allow professional drivers on it. But it would be interesting to see the innovation that would be possible with the level of investment that's required for a coach. I've always thought, my father's always wanted us to start a business where you drive out somewhere like Dartford, okay, um, and you put your car on a car transporter, board a coach at 10 o'clock at night, and you basically have a little cabin that drives you down to, say, the south of France or Bordeaux or wherever, you know, okay, somewhere in the middle of France, and then just, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning drops you off with your car. So you've then got the whole of southern France effectively, you know, half a day's drive away because you've done most of the driving overnight. Uh, and George Monbiot, the environmental campaigner, also believes that coach travel deserves far more consideration because, of course, it's how the cash-constrained people travel at the moment. They don't go by train at all. If you're really cash-constrained, you go by coach. That's the first point. But his other point is that, I mean, it gets no attention. So I spoke to Steve Norris, who was a transport minister in the UK for some time, and he said, I used to get these sort of 400-page reports about the future of transportation in the UK. And you get buses, you get trains, you get cars, you get all this shit. He said, coach travel in this fat document was literally two paragraphs. There was two paragraphs devoted to coach travel in the entire document, despite the fact that, you know, in things like the Oxford Tube, you know, uh, City Link or whatever it is, you know, there are certain city pairs which can be brilliantly connected with a high-frequency coach service. The really dumb thing in London is that the fucking coach station is right in the middle of London. In fact, it's in South London, okay? So most of the journeys, your first hour and a half is just sitting in London traffic, not moving. Rory, as, as someone who... My, my, my dad invented Megabus. You're joking. Your dad is the inventor of Megabus. Yeah. That's astounding. He used to, he used to, run, he used to be the MD of Stagecoach Bus, and Megabus was like... They got given some remnants of buses from a business in Hong Kong. And his thing was, well, we'll paint them blue, we'll sell the tickets on the internet for a quid and put a fat, jolly man on the back. That's genius. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Now, has Megabus, I think Megabus did explore a kind of luxury version, didn't they? Is that right? They did Megabus Gold. Megabus so they had Gold. Big, I think they'd done if they did sleepers or they did bigger seats, but there was That's Megabus right. Gold. Did that succeed it was, or not? It was very short-lived. Didn't succeed. I don't know why. But it was very short-lived. You see, I think with marketing, you could have made something out of that between certain routes. You know, I can see the kind of people who'd want to do that to Edinburgh, which is, you know, I, can't, I don't want to, you know. Of course, I mean, some of it may be, of course, the thing that hits it is uh, the um, uh, yield management pricing on trains, which meant that if you're, you know, you can actually game the system and get something pretty cheap if you want to. It worked really well with students. Like the way they originally sold tickets yeah. was... Um, university computer lab screensavers and that would then link to buy a ticket from Cardiff to London for a quid. Yeah. Genius. Absolutely brilliant. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> I must go now, but this has been absolutely yep. joyous and respect. Really, thank you. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> you made it. Thank you so much for listening to the Connected Community Podcast from Bolden Networks. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Rory just as much as we did. And to be honest, we really could have gone on all day. But for your ears, we cut it there. Follow or subscribe on your platform of choice to stay connected for future episodes and keep up to date with the latest innovations at balding.com.